0: Unfound is a podcast that has now covered 264 disappearances over 328 episodes. It has an interview-based format and concentrates on the facts, not the theories. Today, and for the twelfth time, I will take you back to the beginning, then right up to the present, as I cover recent updates on many of Unfound's cases. I'm at Denzel, and this is Unfound. In the spirit of making these update episodes easier to listen to or watch, I've cut to a minimum the pomp and circumstance of the previous ones. If you'd like to get a detailed report on how Unfound went from nothing to something over the past six years, please listen to the first seven minutes of the update episode that came out at the end of 2021. Moving on. Unfound news. There is now officially another unfound podcast. Unfound Live. The live show that I've done on YouTube for almost five years now has its own podcast feed on iTunes, Spotify, and elsewhere. Please. Sincerely please. Pretty please with sugar on top please subscribe to it. Just do a search on your podcast platform. Next, I did a live interview with the hosts of the podcast Locating the Lost this past Wednesday, August 24th. Yes, they interviewed me. If you missed it, you can find it on both their Facebook page and YouTube channel. It was fun. Finally, the next monthly episode of Unfound Now will come out this weekend for members on Unfound's YouTube channel. Please consider joining for the low price of 10 cents a day. Where you can find Unfound on these following podcast platforms Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and many others especially outside the United States. The new podcast, Unfound Live, which comes out on Tuesdays, can also be found on these platforms. Social media sites, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the newest one, TikTok. Listener support sites, patreon.com forward slash unfoundpodcast, paypal.me forward slash. Unfound Podcast. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And please mention Unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. Okay, the following is for anyone who has never listened to an Unfound Update episode before. Of course, Unfound is finding new listeners and viewers all the time. After six years, that makes a lot of sense. For those people, this is how the update episode works. I go back through all now 264 disappearances, and I start to look around and find out uh, if there have been any updates since the last update episode came out, which in this case would have been at the end of April. So this is anything that has happened in the last four months. And the next update episode will come out at the end of this year, uh, the last Friday of 2022. What I then do is I put together a file, just just putting the missing person's name, and then I have a short rundown, the general facts of the disappearance. And in fact, for all of them, I just use the intro, you know, for Unfound. We don't start with music at Unfound. Uh, the first thing you always hear is me talking about, in very general terms, the missing person. And then the music comes in. Well, that short 30 to 35 to 40 second, seconds uh, of intro, that is then what I read. And then after that, I go into what the update is for that particular uh, case. I do not have this scripted. I have notes in front of me. Of course, if you are watching this, uh, I use my one laptop to record, and I use my other laptop uh, where the notes are that are right in front of me on that computer. I do not type these out and read as if from a paragraph because that would take forever. And uh, so what I do is I just put down a few notes just to make sure I'm reminded of what I need to talk about, and then I kind of fill in the blanks with everything else. So if you hear some ums and errs and you knows and things like that, which maybe I'm kind of prone to anyway during regular interviews, that is the reason. And then I go, starting from the beginning, uh, back in September 2016 up to the present, any disappearances that have updates, those are the ones that are included in the episode. And then when I'm done doing the updates for both the regular episodes and the Unfound Now episodes that are monthly starting, uh, that started during the summer of 2020, then I go into a a remembrance uh, portion of this episode where I read off all of the missing people who we've covered on Unfound, even if their cases have been solved, even if they've been found, uh, they are included, and that is how these all these episodes end. So let's get started. First up, Joshua Guimond. Joshua Cheney Guimond was a 20-year-old student at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. On the night of November 9th, 2002, he was playing cards with his friends in their dorm room. Around 11 p.m. he left the room, his friends thinking he went back to his dorm. He was never seen again. It's probably one of the better known disappearances that Unfound has covered. Of course, here we pride ourselves in covering a lot of disappearances that are not nationally known and maybe not even locally known and and then even disappearances that aren't on NamUs and aren't on The Charlie Project. Uh, like to get those kinds of disappearances out there. Uh, of course, there is a podcast. I have mentioned it uh, a couple times that has been going on what has it been for a couple months now maybe. Started this summer of 2022. I will admit that I don't think that I've listened to the most recent episode. Been a little busy. And as you know... Uh, listening to other podcasts true crime podcasts is not uh the number one concern in my life when I'm not working on unfound, but I have been listening, and uh truth be known that the host of this podcast, his name also happens to be Joshua uh did contact me well before it came out and had um asked me about it um, let me know that they were going to be you know. Uh, that the, the podcast was going to be coming out, and it was going to be weekly or bi-weekly, meaning every other week and and things like that. And I had publicized it uh, for all of you uh, on Facebook and elsewhere. I really don't know uh, how many episodes are there now, maybe five or six as of August 23rd of 2022. And like I said, I think I've listened to maybe the first four. And I... Uh, What can I say about it? If some of you have listened to it, the only thing I would say is that it has gone in a direction uh, that I didn't expect. Um, Certainly there has been things out there regarding maybe Josh uh, was gay, which has been a topic on just about every episode so far. And the host, along with somebody else uh, who is helping him with this podcast – uh, they've been talking about information gotten from uh, Josh's computer and how that night it seems somebody else was on Josh's computer playing music and and things like that. Uh, I will tell you it seems highly speculative to, to me. He talks about – this is not a criticism. It's Joshua, not Joshua Gimon's, but Joshua the Host's podcast. But what concerns me is that we hear so much – Uh, about missing young men. At some point, one way or the other, it, it certainly comes out. I don't know where this all comes from. I certainly don't start these things. But that some of these men, or maybe even all of them, it seems to be something prevalent that maybe these men were gay and they were afraid to come out, and so they ran off, or maybe they were going to meet a gay lover and were murdered, or they we gay and somebody new and somebody was straight and it was a hate crime. A lot of these things um, happen, and I will name just some of the disappearances that we have covered on Unfound where these stories um, came out, these rumors. Tom Brown, of course, maybe before his remains uh, were found, of course, we'll be talking about Tom Brown's death uh, later in this episode. But Tom Brown, Brian Schaefer. Stephen Kocher, Craig Freer. The issue, of course, is that in all of those, there's no proof of any of it. A lot of people talking, even maybe some people who knew some of these uh, missing young men, especially maybe in Brian Schaefer's case, Tom Brown's case. Um, But there's no proof of that. No pictures, no video, no love letters, nothing. And so... I'm, I have, if Joshua Guimon was gay, I don't care, but I think we also have to remay, uh, remember that we would never want to be judged on the kind of Google searches that we do. Uh, I am a straight guy. I am a law-abiding citizen. I don't have any felonies on my record, anything like that, and that's just I—that's how I really live my life. But if you were to see maybe some of my Google searches, of course it. Given that I'm involved in true crime, I, I, I guess that, that skews it a little bit. You know, I would hate for anybody to think any group to think they know me. If I were to pass away, somebody gets on my computer and sees my computer search history. I don't think that that is an accurate representation of who I am. It's just me, you know. Of course, we all do this. We're sitting around and, you know, just something kind of pops into our head. And it may doesn't even have to be anything R rated or X rated or have to do with sexuality or anything else. But if I were to do a search on basket weaving, does that then mean that I'm interested in basket weaving? Not necessarily. Maybe I just heard the word and was, like, what exactly is basket weaving anyway? So when it comes to um, the angle that uh, that has been is being, is being uh, pushed in this podcast, it very well may be true. But I haven't heard of anybody yet, at least in the episodes that I've um, listened to, of anybody coming forward and say. Yeah, I had a re- uh, a man coming forward and saying, yeah, I had a relationship with Joshua Gimond Or some guy coming forward with emails that were like, let's just call them love letters between the two. I haven't heard anything like that. So, I'm not sure what to think of it. Um, in addition, if we're thinking that he was killed because he was gay, well it doesn't seem like anybody who knew him knew he was gay. So then how could anybody kill him because he was gay? In addition, if it was somebody who knew he was gay, would that then not mean it was some other gay person? And then are we to think that some other gay male killed Joshua, Guimond? I don't know. Um, And on top of that, we just have to remember that That the the gay community, the lesbian community, is far less prone to violence than straight people are. So it very well may be true. I'm not saying uh, a gay man hasn't killed another gay man before. I'm not saying that a gay man hasn't been killed for being gay. I know all those things. Uh, It just seems to me I have not yet heard anything that would lead me in that direction. I think that also that uh, at this point, once again, at this point in that podcast, that we just know too much about young men who really walk away no matter what their sexuality is, who end up deceased, having committed suicide for inexplicable reasons. And it may be a good example of this, even though it has to do with women, is that this year, maybe over the past year, we have had a rash um you know a, a rash series of incidents with college females especially athletes well known female athletes in college who've committed suicide and surely nobody would have thought that these women would have done that but they did have to always think about that even though these women seemingly had all the things to live for in life doing well in school doing well in athletics But somewhere underneath, something wasn't right. And so there's much more – many more incidents of that than there is of uh, people being murdered due to their sexuality. So as you continue on this – and I know they have his computer and they're getting things off of it, but really until somebody finds anybody who – can convincingly prove to everybody that yes, I had a relationship with Joshua Guimond, yes, we were dating behind the scenes, yes, he was in the closet, and prove it with, I don't know how you do that, some of it may be, like I said, R-rated or X-rated, maybe, or at least some sort of letters, emails, things like that, then I continue to have my doubts. Um, I think that people can look up Topics of a sexual nature, whether it has to do with sexuality or pornography or prostitution or anything like that, and not be involved in that. I think we have to keep that in mind. And, and go back to what I said before. That we have covered some disappearances, and that's just a short list. Tom Brown, Brian Schaefer, Stephen Coach, or Craig Freer, where there were all sorts of stories out there. Well, maybe they went missing because of their sexu- sexuality. Lots of talk. Not any proof, so we'll just have to see. I'm doubtful, but of course I've been wrong before. Next, Robin Abrams. Robin Renee Abrams was a 28 year old from Beecher, Illinois. She she was the sole plaintiff in a suit against Will County, accusing officers of sexual harassment, among other charges, after being fired. From her job there as a deputy, on October 4th, 1990, Robin drove away from her parents' home. Not far down the road, Robin waved to her father, who was headed in the opposite direction. She was never seen again. The update here is I actually got to meet uh, her sister, Jody Walsh, back in July. It was uh, convenient that I went to Illinois— for uh, the World Masters, that means 40 years old, people 40 years and old, older, uh, the Disc Golf Masters Championships in Peoria. And because I knew I was going to Illinois, I would contacted Jody. She still lives in the state of Illinois. And I thought, well, do we have a chance of getting together? And we did. So it was that Wednesday of that week that I met Jody and her son, at a Cracker Barrel, like halfway between where I was staying and where she lives. And we had a great time. Uh, Got to meet and talk and, of course, talked about Robin's uh, disappearance and, of course, Tony Marquez, who has died within the last couple years. And it was a pleasure to me because, as you probably suspect, I have not met many of Unfound's guests. They're all over... The United States, of course, some in Canada, and maybe I've met five or six now maybe, something like that, including Jody. So uh, it was good to uh, put another person that I've met on the list. I don't know when I'm going to get to meet another guest again. We'll just have to see. But it, it was on my mind, and going to Illinois, and I'm glad that we uh, could put that all together. I think that Rob, uh, I think that Jody and her son uh, enjoyed it as well. He and I started talking about, uh, I think he is in the Navy or was in the Navy, and even though I've not been in the military, I tend to know a lot about the Navy and ships and things like that. So he and I had a, a short but very in-depth a conversation about that so it, it was a really good time so I got to meet uh, Jody Walsh uh, and she's a woman uh, of course one of the first guests ever on Unfound going back to the fall of 2016 so technically I've known her for about five and a half years now and so it was finally nice to meet her uh, for the first time Next update, Rebecca Gary. Becky Pauline Gary was a 32-year-old single mother living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She liked making friends at local coffee shops and hobnobbing with the city's upper class. On December 27th, 1988, she called her sister, telling her things weren't working out in Baton Rouge and that she was ready to move to Shreveport. Becky was never seen again. Lots going on. Regarding uh, Rebecca Gary's case. And uh, this all is a combination of a couple things. First, there is a listener who voluntarily decided to take on Rebecca's disappearance. It seems like yesterday, but it was probably more like two years ago or something. And she's been working diligently. Her name is Kim Kim. And she's been doing this even though I think she's moved at least once since she started doing this, kind of went away from it for a little while, has come back to it, has been coordinating with uh, Rebecca's uh, sister and daughter, who I both uh, spoke to both of them back at the time that we covered Rebecca's disappearance in the very early uh, weeks of 2017. And so here is the update. This comes directly from Kim. Uh, Like I said, I have not had much to do with any of this. Really, it's been Kim doing the work, and then once in a while she'll tell me what's going on, and I just kind of give her support, maybe give her uh, some insight. And really have not talked much to Rebecca's sister and daughter during all of this, but I have talked to Kim quite a bit uh, about this. And uh, I'm just going to read the notes that Kim sent me some of the things I cannot say uh, that she sent me. However, I will tell you all of you what I what she said I could say. So here we go. Um, Joyce Lee, who is Rebecca's sister, Joyce Lee's visit to the ba- Baton Rouge Police Department on August nineteenth, twenty twenty two, regarding the Rebecca Gary missing persons case. Um, Joyce and five others met with cold case detective Chad Montgomery at 1.30 p.m. Detective Montgomery stated that he and his superior officer have two main theories in mind. And these two theories are Rebecca's disappearance was a professional hit or that Rebecca was in federal witness protection. Now, I will tell you both of those really surprised me. Uh, I'm – at least what I think I know about Rebecca's disappearance, I'm not inclined to believe either of those. Uh, not sure what to think of all that, but I'm not the one sitting there with the police officer, so I'm not going to try to judge this from two states away. Uh, Sounds improbable, but I don't know. But uh, some of the things the Baton Rouge Police Department plans to do is begin the process of executing a search warrant – on Becky's apartment so they can take out the flooring and baseboards to look for biological material relating to Becky. So this is the place that Becky last was. This is the place where the landlord went over and her um, luggage – like she was half-packed, and there were two glasses on the counter. And if you remember, there was a picture of Edwin Edwards that was on the bed, but the the glass had been cracked as if somebody threw it there, and the glass cracked – Maybe an anger or something. It's just a few things. Maybe some of the lights might have been on. But this is the place we're talking about, that their plan is to execute a search warrant on that apartment, which luckily is still around. Take out some of the flooring and baseboards, I guess, to see if there was some sort of violent situation that happened. People cleaned it up, but maybe something leaked you know, to places that couldn't be seen, at least with the naked eye. So they're going to do that, uh, begin the process of requesting DNA from Edwin Edwards' children so that it can be tested to verify if Jamie, Rebecca's daughter, is indeed Edwin Edwards' biological daughter. Edwin Edwards, uh, former governor of Louisiana. This was a topic of conversation during the episode in 2017, although I will tell you that uh, we kind of downplayed it at least a little bit because – Maybe it's a little bit of sensationalism there, but there was some proof that Rebecca did know him. Uh, it's one of those depend on what depends what your point of view is. Think from uh, the family's point of view, Rebecca's point of view that Edwin Edwards was, you know, interested in Rebecca. But there has been news that have come out over the years. Maybe she was obsessed with him instead of her kind of stalking her or calling her and trying to get together with her, that she was actually going after him and he was trying to avoid her. Hard to say. But uh, they're going to try to get the DNA from Edward, Edward's children so they can be tested. Now, what his children go along with that? Would they have to? Um, Of course, if they get a subpoena or something, then I guess they'd have to, but I guess they're going to try to see if, um, once again, Jamie, Rebecca's daughter, is actually the governor of former – It's the daughter of the former governor of Louisiana. Should know that Edwin – even though this disappearance happened in 1988, Edwin Edwards just died within the last couple years, very old, and um, he was still around. But they're going to attempt to do this. Whether Edward's family will go along with us, I just have to see. Uh, also, Baton Rouge Police Department uh, plans to contact Crime Stoppers to request a reward for information about Becky's disappearance. We will put on a news release to local television stations about Becky's case. And in fact, uh, I'm doing this recording on August 23rd, 2022. And Kim has told me there's going to be something on local Baton Rouge or Shreveport or New Orleans or New Orleans Um, maybe in all these places, going to be a local story about Rebecca's uh, case and her disappearance, which is really good considering it's a case that's almost 34 years old. That is unique, and it's it's spectacular. And then also, uh, at least for Joyce, once again, Rebecca's sister, she is looking into getting billboards to place around Baton Rouge. I think it's all spectacular. Uh, it's it's as good as it gets with a disappearance this old. Yeah, I don't know if they have any suspects. Maybe they, you know, if they're going to go do biological testing for Edwin Edwards' children, then I guess you could say maybe they suspect that her disappearance has something to do with that. I'm certainly open to that. In fact, I will tell you, I'm more open to that than I am some sort of professional hit. Of course, then we have to start thinking well, professional hit. Did Edwin Edwards want Rebecca out of the way? It seems a little extravagant and sensational to me. Of course, it's physically possible. Could certainly believe that Rebecca was murdered by somebody. But professional hit, I don't, you know, I just don't know. Um, And then witness protection... Uh, I, you, as many of you, as many of you know, I've said this before. We never talk about it in interviews, but I continue to be amazed how many family members bring that up to me. That, uh, you know, they ask me, is it possible that this, um, that my missing loved one is uh, in witness protection? And of course, my response is always Maybe did they your missing loved one testify in some trial, some big trial? Is there any proof of that? Can we go to some sort of transcript? And the answer is always no. So I don't know why Rebecca would be in witness protection. I've never heard anything that she knew anything about anything to testify about anything. So why the Baton Rouge Police Department thinks this I would hope they know more about all of this than I do, and it's good they're going to be doing these things, but professional hit and witness protection seem to be the least likely of possibilities. Like I said, though, I'm open to the idea that she was murdered by somebody, but professional hit – I don't know, but who knows who who else she was – Befriending, who knows who might have been coming over that day. We just don't know. And so that is the update. I think it's all spectacular. So have a little bit of doubt about what the police, you know, the, what the police department thinks. But if they're going to be doing the things that are, have been told to me today, then I'm all for all of it. It's all excellent. Next update, Brandon Williams. Brandon Williams, host to his family, was a 33-year-old from Ephraim, Utah. He had lived in such wide-ranging places as the Hamptons and California. On May 17, 2013, he got on a bus in Salt Lake City heading back to where he lived in Key West, Florida. On May 18, he made a call to a friend saying he was in Nashville. He was never seen again. There really is no update regarding the investigation into uh, Brandon's disappearance. Now It is now over nine years old. But I just wanted to tell all of you that uh, Stormy, his sister, who was the guest, once again way back in 2017, uh, is doing well. Uh, many of you know that uh, a few years ago she uh, had some seizures. Uh, she got some x-rays and MRIs done. And it turned out that she had brain cancer, and it was very serious, just came out of nowhere. She was fine, then all of a sudden she was collapsing, and uh, my guess is she had not gotten the care that she needed very quickly. She would not be with us now, but she had operations done. She has recovered, and then – and she has been very – I'm not talking out of school here. She has posted on the, this on her Facebook page for everybody to see that uh, she had another operation done a few months ago, and then uh, she had uh, a checkup here recently, and it seems things are going as smoothly as they can. Uh, This is probably going to be something. Of course, some people have uh, cancer of all types. They get to take They get it cut out or irradiated, chemotherapy, and it never comes back. My brother Brian is one of those people who had cancer like 10 years ago, uh, and it has not come back. In fact, I've got to say he's just going to be turning 70. He's probably way healthier now than he was 10 years ago in many respects. Uh, But it's probably going to be something for Stormy that is really going to be a lifelong thing. And I, of course, hope she lives to be 150, but my guess is this is something that's going to have to be watched over uh, maintained uh, f- uh, for forever. It doesn't sound to me like this situation where you're irradiated or, you know, chemo and then it goes away permanently. This is something that's maybe going to come back every once in a while and she'll have to take care of it. So she'll have to stay up on it. Um, so, but she's doing well, I think, as can be. Uh, I've not spoken to her recently, but she knows I'm rooting for her. And uh, Stormy has been through so much since she was on the podcast in 2017. Uh, Of course, she lost her mother. Um, When was it? In 2021. And then, like I said, I think it was maybe 2019. This was before COVID. uh, In 2019, she had these seizures that had been brought on by brain cancer. So we're all pulling for you, Stormy, and uh, we're hoping uh, the best for you. Next, Craig Freer. Craig Freer was a 17-year-old from Glenville, New York. He was the captain of his soccer team and an all-around popular guy. On June 27th, 2004, although he should have been at work, he was at a friend's house. After getting caught in this lie, Craig said he was coming home. He was never seen again. I'm really bringing this up because this was a, uh, a, a disappearance that I decided to revisit this summer. You know, once in a while we do that. Uh, we've done one on Aub Robin Abrams. Uh, a year ago we did Tom Brown's. We revisited that, up, uh, that disappearance. Did Ashley Kohler's at the end of last year. Once in a while, uh, it very well may be, I just think it's time. Or that maybe uh, there's no guests lined up for that week. That's always possible. But this was kind of planned. Uh, Actually, as far as Guests for Unfound is going, I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people this summer. But uh, I thought it was a good time. Also, a factor was that I was going to Illinois and that was going to cut down on my work time. And putting together one of these revisited episodes is easier than putting a regular episode together. But I thought it was time. Craig Freer's disappearance uh, has been talked about a lot since we covered it in 2017. And so I thought it was a good time to revisit it uh, to a whole new batch of listeners who might not have been around when we first covered it in 2017 when his mother was the guest. The issue continues to be that who is that girl? Now, what's puzzling to me is I know that there are are people who have listened to both the original episode and the revisited episode who knew Craig. People in the Scotia, New York area, people in the Glenville, New York area who went to high school with him or worked with him, played sports with him, something – and not still not one of them uh, has emailed me or contacted me or any of my assistants or posted something on in the group or on the Facebook page. Nothing. Nobody's called me. Nothing. Because the call-out uh, is I'm calling out to everybody. I'd like to know who this girl was in 2004 who was with Craig. She's now 18 years older. Let's just say... He was seventeen at the time that say she was sixteen or seventeen. She's now in her mid thirties. Whoever you are, love to talk to you. Off the record. Nobody, I mean, I might have to tell probably the listeners, the audience, that we've talked. But if you want to remain anonymous, you can. But it's it's been 18 years now. Is it not time? Uh, To come forward. I know that there are a lot of, if you're listening to this, whoever you are, uh, young lady, um, you know, I I realize there are a lot of podcasts out there that are trash, that are sensational, that the hosts are not worth listening to or worth talking to. I would hope, I, I would like to think that I am worth talking to, that I can be helpful, that I'm discreet got a lot of secrets bouncing around up in my brain from doing this podcast for the last six years. I can certainly keep your secrets, but from an aspect of trying to move this disappearance forward, come on. Let, let's talk. You can email me at unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, I'm going to need some proof at least that you are who you say you are. Uh, The listeners, the audience knows that I do get a lot of um, strange emails and kook emails and messages and and everything. If you are that uh, uh, woman who was a girl at the time who was with Craig in that apartment when he got the call from his mother, let's talk. Let's talk. There's no judgment here or anything. I just would like to know what you experienced that day, what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced with Craig and him getting that call and where he said he was going and what he was doing. That's all I'm looking for. Consider it, please. Next update, Crystal Morrison. Crystal Dawn Morrison was a 31-year-old Living in Concord, North Carolina, she was the mother of one and had an introverted but friendly personality. On August 23, 2012, she was dropped off at work by her boyfriend, Matt. An hour later, she felt sick and called a family friend to pick her up. When he arrived, Crystal wasn't there. She was never seen again. Of course, people who really, really, really follow and found know that Crystal Morrison's disappearance has been solved. Her remains were found in, what was it, 2019 or 20 – I think it was 2019 before COVID and has been determined. She walked away from her job on her own by choice, and she had succumbed to the elements. uh, I think a lot of factors coming together, her being sick, her being underweight, it being like 100 degrees that day, and she probably died of heat stroke. The reason she wasn't found is because – the Where she was found was on private property, and at the time, in 2012, that o- owner of that land would not allow anybody on that land. And then, like I said, about 2019, uh, there was an em- eminent domain by the local government. They were going to be widening, widening a road or new sewers or something, these – surveyors went onto the land remains were found they ended up being crystal morrison not far from where she was working and not far from that shell station where she appeared on video no foul play uh, suspected now the update though is very sad that her sister michelle who uh, was the guest for that episode uh, her husband died husband uh, died just Maybe six weeks ago, something like that, of course, this summer, uh, since the last update episode. Very, very sad. Uh, and I haven't talked to Michelle in a while. I did offer my condolences when I heard about it. My perception is that this was something that was very, very sudden. This was not. I don't think this is something that her husband had been uh, dealing with something for a long time. Like cancer or a stroke or COPD or something like that. My uh, my idea, the way she has ri- posted about it, she had not. I don't think she specifically said what happened, but seems like it was very sudden. Of course, caught my attention because her husband was the same age I am now, which is fifty-two. So uh, at the time, I offered uh, the condolences from myself and all of my assistants and all of you, the listeners, to. Michelle uh, Carey, who is Crystal Morrison's sister, who was, once again, the guest way back in, I think it was September of 2017. Um, Still uh, offering you sympathies out there. Michelle, please take care. Next update, Marina Bolter. And I think this is the first time uh, we've talked about Marina's disappearance on and found for an update episode pretty sure marina bolter was an 18 year old from bloomfield bloomfield indiana she found her way through some rough times but had recently gotten her own place to live on new year's eve 2014 marina got off work and hitched a ride home with a customer from there she was supposed to go to a new year's eve party marina never showed up she was never seen again uh, the very sad news and I, I cannot offer but the deepest apology to uh, Marina's family. But I found out just within the last week and a half, and it's it's just one of those things that it's tough to keep up with uh, people now that we're up to 260 some disappearances. When it was a hundred, that's a it was a lot easier. With two hundred and sixty-four. Sometimes things do slip through the cracks, and, and I can do nothing. It's not an excuse. It's just, I, I apologize. I'm just trying to do my best here. But Tressie Palmer, who is Marina's mother, who was the guest back when we covered Marina's disappearance, I think sometime in uh, early 2018, Tressie Palmer died. And the reason I'm apologizing, she actually died a year and a half ago. I know. So, uh, I apologize deeply to uh, the family, and I, I'm trying to keep up on these things as best as I can. But, um, you know, this is one of those things that if anybody does know about any guests of Unfound, and I know many of you do know uh, some of these guests, you interact with them, even know them personally. If any of them pass away or, or something, please do not hesitate to email me. But uh, Tressie died in March of 2021. And the really sad thing uh, that 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 her, it hurts even on top of that is that I've been told that at the time of her disappearance, or her death, Tressie was living under a bridge in a tent. And... Uh, as as I, I say every time when – for the first time that Tyler Stice's – I found out that Tyler Stice's sister who was a guest died. That was number one. She was the first guest to pass away. And now Marina being number six, it hurts every time. But on top of that, to know that a guest of Unfound who I interviewed and got to know ended up – Living under a bridge in a tent. Ah, just a little – it's a little overwhelming, and I, I will be honest. When I found out about this, was it a week ago maybe, like about August 15th of 2022, something like that? It, it certainly hit me hard. Everyone does, but this one, you, when you find out uh, – I'm finding out a year and a half later, and those were the conditions that she was living in before she died – <sighs> Bad. You know, I just think. You know, I should have. You know, did she have a phone? I don't even know. I went back and looked at her Facebook page. She had not posted on her Facebook page for a while. I, I don't even know. If she, did she have a computer? Did she have a phone? I don't even know. I have a phone number for. Her. Did she even have her phone anymore? I don't even know. So, uh, how could I have helped her? I don't know. But. You know, could I have given her some encouraging words or something? But she had gotten—I think she had gotten sick somehow. And 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 truthfully, to, to be honest, uh, Tressy, uh, a unique character. And I, I, my perception is that maybe not only did her daughter Marina have some struggles, but I think Tressie had some struggles of her own that had nothing to do with her daughter's disappearance. But still. It is embarrassing to me that I didn't know that a a guest of Unfound was living in this condition, and then on top of that, that it took me a year and a half to find out that this uh, person, uh, Tressie, died. I like Tressie a lot. Like I said, unique character, one of the most unique characters uh, we've had on Unfound, but I liked her a lot. I think she did a fantastic interview. Like I said, my impression is that uh, she had her own struggles, but I think she was doing the best she could. You know, fighting her own demons to try to find out what happened to Marina, and uh, just she got sick somehow, and now she is gone. So um, that is, of uh, guess that is death number six, and it's uh, like I said, it hurts every time. As far as Marina's disappearance, unfortunately, there's no updates regarding that investigation. Uh, they're just – I think there's four different people you could pick out. Surely something of a foul play occurred. We have four different people, this married guy she was seeing. There was a guy who had killed somebody before who was living in her apartment building. There was a boyfriend who was around that day, and then there was this person who gave her a ride home. Pick one. Pick one. So, that is the update for Marina Bolter. Next update, and it seems like uh, this portion of the uh, uh, this update episode has to do with deaths. Next update is Mandy Stokes. Alicia Amanda Stokes, Mandy to those who knew her best, was a 33-year-old from Oakland, California. Although she had been on the West Coast for a few years, she planned to move back to be with her mother on the East Coast. On November 25th, 2007, she left her car after having an she left in her car after having an argument with her roommate, her brother Aaron. While driving, Mandy was on the phone with her boyfriend when the line went dead. Mandy's car was found, she was never seen again. The update is that her brother Aaron died within the past month. So we now have a a situation where this was a – you should know. This was a a disappearance that was covered on the TV show Disappeared, and dare I say it, in that episode of Disappeared, they did kind of frame it in a way that uh, Aaron was responsible for his sister's disappearance. To to go a little further into the details – Somebody saw them having this argument and that she left and she even called her boyfriend who was on the East Coast, I think maybe in New York, and telling him about it. And then right in the middle of the phone call, even though she was in her car, the line went dead. Why that was, I guess we'll never know, but he tried calling her back, no answer, and she went missing right after that. And her car was found not too far away, not right down the street, maybe a couple miles away, and still not sure what to make of all of it. But because these two had that argument, there is a belief that Aaron caused her disappearance. For example, was she talking in her car? The phone died, so she went back upstairs to charge it. And they got in another fight in the apartment, Aaron and and Mandy, and he did something to her. Certainly possible. I don't know if there are any facts. And I do remember talking about the police came over, and and he would not let them inside, something like that. Certainly possible that Aaron had something to do with it. Now, you should know Aaron has had a lot of struggles, even well before uh, Mandy went missing with drugs. And he continued to struggle with them after 2007. I don't know how he died. He was now I think living in Louisiana. But uh my suspicion is that probably his death did have something to do with drugs. I don't know that, but uh the guest their mother, uh, Deborah Murray, who uh just recently she had uh let me know that this is ha- this had happened. So she's now lost two children. Very events. Very sad. What what can I, you know, what can I say? So if Aaron didn't know anything, even if he didn't do it, maybe maybe it did have something to do with drugs and but he didn't do it, certainly is possible. I guess we'll never know now. But uh so this is uh almost fifteen years later that he passed away. And even though I think in many people's minds, in fact, maybe even in my own, that he was the number one suspect in his own sister's disappearance. Of course, the question is, what did he do with If he's the one that harmed her, where did he take her? Of course, he couldn't have put her in the backyard because they were living in an apartment building. Why would he do that in her car? Did he walk the whole way back to the apartment? I guess it's possible. You know, unfortunately, given Mandy and some of the choices she was making at the time, it's also very possible that she drove off and parked her car there and walked away just because of some of the things that she was going through. So just don't know. But Aaron was uh, suspect number one, and now he has passed away. That's the update. Okay, next update, Donald Irwin. In fact, I think this is the first time we've ever mentioned Donald Irwin on an update episode. Donald Lee Irwin was a 59-year-old from Camdenton, Missouri. He was a Navy vet and loved to tinker with electronics and machines. On December 29th, 2013, he got up early, as he usually did, and headed down to the local store to pick up some cigarettes. He was never seen again. Now, I should add in there that he and his vehicle are missing. This is one of those very few that we still have uh, for Unfound where the car is missing as well. Some of those other, of course, would be Audrey Heron, Lola Catherine Frye, Jeff Joseph, Uh, Harry Milligan, um, that might be all of them. Did I just do that off the top of my head? That's pretty good. I think that there are at least those five. Maybe there are one or two more, but those at least are five disappearances that we've covered that are still unsolved. The cars are missing as well. So with Donald's, his is one of those. Now the reason there is an update out of nowhere is that just a few weeks ago, I got a message. I'm not going to give the guy's name. I will tell you what I told him. But uh, this was on, it seems, uh, we got back in uh, the end of July of 2022. I've never gotten a message from this guy before. I don't know who he is. So he just may be totally making all of this up. I don't know. Uh, Because, like I said, I get a lot of um, unique messages. But I'm just going to read what he sent me and then i will tell you my response and then i'll give you a little more in in depth about why i how i respond why i respond the way i do to this type of information. He wrote me and said, "Hey man, i was doing some research on Donald Irwin completely random. Anyway, saw people mention peculiar activity with his wife after his after he disappeared. I haven't listened to the podcast yet." but found some interesting shell company LLCs with so many red flags suggesting money laundering linked to property Rhonda had deeded or as deeded to her in Oklahoma. It's a lot of information. If you're not familiar with LLCs, how they're used to hide stuff, etc., it can look very legit to the normal person. The big thing that stood out is that the acqu- acquisition date of said property was unknown. Not long ago, it said to to. So- to be sold for like nine hundred thousand dollars, but two years later it's valued at two, only two hundred and nineteen thousand. If what I saw is correct, the property is dated to her, so she's the one who would benefit from it. The LLC can be made to hide um, her he didn't finish that sentence. It may sound crazy, but I could lay it out and show you, but you may know uh, you may know about it already. who knows uh, actually i didn't. My thoughts have, uh, went to what kind of stamps was she pulling? How does it link together? Because obviously she benefited, benefited from illegal income between 2013 and 2018. Insurance payments wouldn't be legal, illegal. I also found the name Donald e. Irwin in background reports linked up to the same address as Rhonda in Oklahoma. Um, here's what I wrote back to him. Um, his name, and then i said i 'm not sure what to make of all of that. All of that may be legal illegal. if you think it 's noteworthy, I would turn it over to some kind of state department, and what I meant by that is some division in that state, Oklahoma or Missouri, who handles these types of things regarding insurance fraud, anything like that. Maybe it has something to do with donald 's disappearance, and in fact, I hope it does. Thank you for the information. I wrote that back to him on August fifteenth i 've not gotten any response from him since. I have not taken the time to see if what he is saying is true. Uh, very well could be. Uh, but what it first reminds me of is this came up just recently with Mildred McQuillan's disappearance. You will remember Joe Kistner, one of the guests for that episode, talked about how uh, there were some weird land things that had something to do with uh, Jean, of course Clarence and Jean, and she was married, her husband died, and it looks like there, some things had been deeded to someone else, and then came back to her, and then it was only in her name. I don't know about any of that. I mean, I've never even owned a house or any land in my life, so what would I know about any of that? Nothing. Uh, so as far as what this guy sent me, certainly maybe uh mysterious, but even if I were to talk to this guy and he would all lay it out to me, I wouldn't know if it's legal or not. So when I get stuff like this— I'm not usually inclined to get too in depth in talking to somebody about this stuff. I'm not saying they're not telling the truth. I don't know, but even if they're going to tell it to me, I really don't really don't know what to make of it anyway because I don't know anything about real estate. So that's why I told him, you know, if you think it's something, go run with it. I, I just don't know what I'm going to do with it because I don't uh, you know. I really don't understand it. So, and and, uh, my knee jerk reaction is that it has nothing to do with Donald's disappearance, but it very well may be. He got off for some insurance money and there was some sort of money laundering. Not crazy. It's certainly physically possible, but, you know, Donald and his vehicle go missing. Maybe this is one of those ones that uh, Adventures with Purpose needs to look into. Uh, I do remember in thinking back at at the disappearance, there was a phone ping near some house. I seem to remember that. But I, I was really, to the guy who sent me this information, I'm really not trying to blow you off, you know, but, you know, sometimes I get messages like, man, I got a lot to say about uh, this disappearance. Call me and the person will leave me the number. And you should know I just don't call people who give me their phone numbers, especially considering that uh, how many messages that I get that that are just not believable. So what I usually do in those situations is I say, You tell me what you think you know. You type it out in this email right here. I will read it. And if I think it's worthy to talk about, I'll let you know. And I will tell you most of the time, it's either one of two things. Either the person does not respond at all, or what they write me is just some theory that could be true just as a hundred other other theories. And so it's just – I'm just not really interested in talking about that. So, maybe there's something here what this guy wrote to me. It sounds more to me like she was maneuvering because maybe she and Donald had names on land and she wanted to do something with it, but without his signature, it was impossible, and so there had to be some legal hoops that she needed to jump through. Certainly possible, which is what it sounds like to me with Milan McQuillan's uh, situation, not with her, but with Gene and her having some land that was both in her and I. Her ex-husband's or deceased husband's name, and she had to do some things to get 100% control or or ownership of it. So I'm hoping that this person who wrote me regarding Donald Irwin's disappearance does take it to Missouri or Oklahoma to see what somebody there makes of it. And I'd certainly like to hear back from him after he does that. Okay, next update, and this is a long one. Zoe Gabrielle Campos was an 18-year-old from Lubbock, Texas. She was close to her family and loved to work on cars. On the night of November 17, 2013, Zoe was at home with her sister and a friend. After they went to bed, Zoe seemingly left to meet a guy who was introduced to her earlier that day. She was never seen again. Now, all of you know pretty much by now. Of course, there are a lot of new viewers and listeners of this podcast, but most of you know that Carlos Rodriguez uh, became uh, was a suspect back in 2013, but nothing really happened. And then, in November of 2018, uh, almost exactly five years later, uh, he got in some trouble. And while he was getting in trouble. For what he did then, he confessed to murdering Zoe. Uh, police went over to her house. They found an area in the backyard of Rodriguez's house, dug it up, found Zoe's remains. And like I said, uh, Carlos did confess to all of this, and I think over the past couple years it's come out that he tried to say it was self-defense, and they were doing something, and she had lost her mind, and he had to fight her off, a whole bunch of different stories. And uh, he wanted to go to trial, but that was delayed seemingly due to COVID. Although I I don't know if that was all of the reason. But we had been waiting for Carlos Rodriguez to go to trial for quite a while, and finally he did. Now I will tell you in the a few weeks ago, it came out that. He uh, they were fighting about this confession that he had given back in 2018. His defense lawyer was trying to get it thrown out because he, you know, uh, something you know, was he Mirandized and did he ask for a lawyer? You know the usual stuff. And eventually, the judge decided if there's going to be a trial. His um, his confession will be uh, admitted. The jury will get to hear that. Now I will tell you, knowing uh, about this confession for quite a while. I thought that you know he has to take a plea of some type. Surely he's not going to go in where anything could be on the table—the death penalty. Given that it's Texas, surely he's not going to do that. And it turned out that I was right. That when they ended up doing uh, starting jury selection, which would have been on August fifteenth, he decided to plead guilty to murdering Zoe. And all a jury had to do was determine his sentence, and the jury came back very quickly uh, in determining that Carlos Rodriguez would be spending a life, I think, without parole, in prison in Texas, which uh, I think, of course, if we could bring Zoe back, that would be best. This is, of course, next best. Now, very fortunately, uh, a listener who I've gotten to know well, I've actually met – her name is Paula. I actually met her in 2018 or 2019 when I went to Amarillo when there was the get-together for Tom Brown's uh, death, if you remember that, when I went out there. It's over three years ago. I don't know where the time goes, back when I had a lot shorter hair, and I got to meet Paula. In fact, she bought me dinner while I was out there at this event that was held. and I, I still uh, thank you for that, Paula, But Paula has taken a deep interest in Zoe's murder, and she actually went to the courthouse and was sending me notes, sending me messages, giving me updates as to everything uh, that was going on. And so uh, here is uh, some of what she sent to me over that time, and I... I will say in general before I get into this is that I think we're just going to have to be satisfied with the idea. There are just going to be things about Zoe's murder that we're never going to know. Um, There are just things that didn't come out in the the proceedings. The prosecution did get to present a lot of its case in the jury in the sentencing phase of why, of course, the – Jury should pick the maximum penalty possible, if not maybe uh, death was off the table, being that there was some sort of plea. But they did get to present quite a bit – quite a few facts that were discovered. And then, of course, on top, uh, Carlos's confession. But still, there are things that we aren't going to know and we may never know, and I will get to those after I read some of this. Um. Here's some of what uh, Paula wrote. Sentencing hearings can bring up prior acts, things not allowed at a trial. Uh, so his felony stalking will be brought to light to the jury. So what Paula is saying there is that it turns out that Carlos did have uh, a bit of history with women. Um, there was, I think, somewhere in here he found out um, – Something having to do with um Carlos had a a child by another woman before this, and this woman had accused him of stalking her, and so I think that's maybe what they are talking about there. So it seems that this guy did have a history. Of course, the issue that is that I always bring up in these types of situations, well then what made Zoe's situation different? And then these other women. Why are all these other women still around? Why didn't he murder any of them? And why was Zoe murdered? This is one of those things I don't think we're ever going to know. And this is what makes these kinds of the man said disappearances, which Zoe was one of those until her remains were found. This is what makes these so tough because you have a lot of men who have uh, dated a lot of women or have been married a few times and all these ex-girlfriends and ex-wives are alive. And then one wife or girlfriend goes missing, and you start thinking, well, what – you know, what was the difference? What, what exactly happened in, in all of this? So this is still, I think, an issue with, Zoe, uh, with Carlos Riguez in, in relation to Zoe being murdered. Um, and Paula said, did you know the remains had zip ties on her hands? That ended up being discovered. And uh, in this uh, sentencing phase, Paula wrote his past assaults were brought up. The state was really going strong on the fact that Carlos doesn't need a motive to hurt women, just an opportunity. The jury was seven men and five women. The men showed more reaction to the horrific acts of violence. The men also looked at Carlos more than the women did. His attorney is trying to give Carlos credit for solving the case and concentrating on the mistakes law enforcement made. And and I think what the defense means is – well, you know, he really helped you out by confessing, didn't he? You know that should be, uh, you know, so that should be considered in this sentencing phase. Uh, the felony stalking that Carlos had was for stalking and assaulting the mother of his kids. This might have been what happened in 2018 that brought about him confessing to Zoe's murder. Uh, Carlos choked her. Uh, this um, the mother of his kids. Not sure how she got away. The first time he. Uh, The first time Carlos buried Zoe, he didn't bury her deep enough, and his dog kept bothering the spot. Carlos then moved Zoe's body. When he did, her foot was detached, and he threw it in the dumpster. According to the state, there was no objection to the story. They interviewed him within 10 days because of her friend April bringing up they were both at her place. So Carlos, I, I think we knew this, that he was questioned not long after. Zoe went missing. He said he hadn't seen her since. Another week or so goes by, and the phone records with messages dispute that. They interviewed him again, once again, back in 2013 with that info, and he denied it. But there wasn't enough to call him a suspect or hold him at that time, once again in 2013. Uh, Paula went then on to say, this is all from what was said in the sentencing phase. Uh, Zoe was initially buried right off of the sidewalk that went to the back gate. And uh, it was a pretty big yard. His first grave was only 18 inches deep. That's why the dog started digging. And then uh, he uh, Carlos moved Zoe's remains to a grave that was three and a half feet deep. Uh, no clothing or remains of any fabric fabric found in any of the dirt they sifted at the scene. So I guess she must have been naked when he did all of this. And then Paula says a couple of things that I really wanted answers to but didn't get. When he moved her body or her hands remained in the first grave, so how much time between the two? Who was living in the house and when did they move out? Um, so um, I'm, I'm just kind of – she sent me all these paragraphs. I'm trying to hit the high points here. Um, and Paula said that she did speak, speak briefly to Zoe's cousin. About moving her, uh, Zoe's hands were actually left in the first grave. And and uh, the theory from the opening statement from the state is that uh, Carlos did not need a motive, just an opportunity. And you have to remember something. Motive is not an element of a crime. The, at no point does the prosecution have to prove that. The reason that it happened, all they have to do is prove that that's the person, John Smith or Carlos Rodriguez, did it. I think we get so caught up in motives because we watch so much of uh, TV, Columbo, and that M word is out there so much when really when it comes to real trials and real life motive is – it might be a good way for the prosecution to try to wade through facts and gather more facts. But in a trial, it's very possible that the motive uh, is never mentioned. Um uh, it says here that with her wrist zip tied it makes it go to some sexual assault or attempted sexual assault and uh, so these are some of the things uh, even when Carlos went to the house he did not provide an exact location so even on that day I remember like it was yesterday with the helicopters flying overhead and the forensics units out front out front in front of his house Even when they brought Carlos over there, he did not provide the exact location. Her remains were found north of that location, probably three feet away. So even in those last moments, uh, Carlos uh, didn't want to be truthful about where he put Zoe. And uh, Paula put it in here that the the, the yard was big. I guess it all depends. I guess guess, uh, it depends on where you grew up. Me growing up on a three-and-a-half... acres of grass in Gilpin Township, Pennsylvania, that yard that the Carlos Rodriguez had was pretty small. Now I can understand if somebody was burying somebody on three and a half acres of grass, it might be a little difficult without ground penetrating radar or something, but this uh, yard was not that big. In addition, they were there at the house fairly quickly. So it's still very unclear, very, very unclear, uh, despite me, Paula and I, talking about this, how the police didn't notice that the, the backyard had been dug up. It's also unclear because it's been stated that Carlos was living there with his parents, and I think he had a sister. Where were they regarding all of this? Uh, Paula did not hear anything about that in a – Any of this. Were they out of town? Had they moved to another house? Was this all just maybe Carlos really was living uh, at this house? Was he renting then? Uh, Did he own the house? I just don't know. But I've always thought that he was living there with his parents, which would not be unusual given his age. However, he did already have children, so I, I don't know. It's still very unclear how he was able to do this. Digging a hole that's three and a half feet deep to put human remains in them is not easy. That takes time. How did he do that? So I think we're going to have to consider that when we start thinking about future uh, disappearances or even other disappearances that Unfound has already covered. That how is it how easy is it to dig a grave and put, a, put remains in it? How quickly can you do that? And I think we have to believe that there were houses on both sides of the Rodriguez house that somebody was able to do this and get away with it for at least five years, even though this person was a suspect and police had been over there and then I guess anything 's possible. Any person is maybe capable of getting away with something like this. I mean we, we shouldn't be so dismissive uh, in circumstances like these. Well, he we surely wouldn't have done that. I mean, somebody's living right next door. Well, maybe maybe he could get away with something like that. So we're, there are just some things. Once again, we're not going to know. Uh, I think that I, I think I guess we can just generalize and say that. He wanted to have sex with Zoe, she didn't want to do that, she fights back, he hits her, maybe is determined that he's going to kill her, or I more likely believe in circumstances like these, that he hits her and he knows he's going to get in trouble, so he just goes the whole way and I'm just going to try to cover it all up, which I think has happened a lot, a lot of disappearances we've covered on Unfound. But we're just not sure where everybody else was in that Rodriguez house around this time and how police missed some of this. So Carlos Rodriguez going away for the rest of his life. Zoe's remains have been found way back in 2018. So this kind of ties up everything uh, finally for Zoe Campus's murder, which started, as I read there, way back in 2013. And so that's the update. Next update, this is another new one, uh, first time uh, for an update episode. Pretty, pretty sure. Uh, of course, we had Donald Irwin, Marina Bolter. I think those are first-timers. And now another first-timer, and it, it makes me happy to say this. I, I, I wish we could clu- include every episode on every update, every disappearance on every update episode. And unfortunately, there are still disappearances that we've covered on Found that have never been mentioned because there have been no, no updates It's very sad but uh we have another new one sean guignard yes from canada yvonne sean guignard uh or yvonne sean guignard sean to those who loved him most was a 34 year old from thompson manitoba he was a friendly guy who would give someone the shirt off his back on the morning of november 28th 2015 sean made a call to his father in ontario asking for money after that call he was never seen again His sister is now – Melinda is now – who was the guest for the episode is now in Thompson, Manitoba, and uh, she is doing uh, quite the work. She sent me a lot of private messages that I'm not going to read, but she has made a public post. That I will read because it's on Facebook for everybody to see. Like I said, though, she has sent me many many messages that I am not going to get into any of that. Here's what she posted today, August 23rd, 2022. With profound sadness, I'm able to provide an update on Yvonne, Sean. I need a sense of – I feel a sense of relief. I feel like it's getting a little easier to breathe. To those who listen to the podcast, it was true. Every single word, every single detail. No one, definitely not. Uh, no one, definitely not the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Even wanted to entertain that. Uh, a de- dedicated sister was able to find out the details from 2,600 kilometers away. But I did it. I found the woman from the podcast. I think she's talking about an unfound's podcast. She confessed again. This time to my face. I see. I saw the pain in her eyes. She she felt in mine. I spoke to the man who took my brother's life. I honestly can't even put into words the emotions going through my head when he was yelling at me, your brother is alive, your brother is alive, he's over there, look, go look over there, he just arrived, get that shirt out of my face, your brother's not dead. Anything to make me flinch, to make me back down, to make me run away, I did not run, I don't look in any direction besides right at this man, he wanted to hit me, I wanted to hit him, he finally walked away, RCMP are coming for you now boy, both of you. So she went out there, and uh, Melinda always believed that uh, her brother had been murdered. And Thompson, Manitoba, even though I think we generally get the idea that Canada is this uh, safe place and certainly has lower crime figures than the United States does, but Thompson, Manitoba is not for the weak of heart. And rough place, and in fact the episode was titled uh, The Most Dangerous Place at least in Canada. And the sisters always believe that Sean was murdered. She refers to him by his real first name, Y-V-O-N, whereas I think for the episode we called him Sean. So she thinks that she has tracked down these two people that she talked about in the episode, people she believed that harmed Sean, was able to track them down there and talk to them. I, the only thing I will tell you, I told her, in all this thing that she was sending me, as I told her, You know, just be careful out there. Now, what do I think about all of this? You have to remember, I think probably after almost six years, we're doing the update episode, six-year anniversary anniversary episode next week, next Friday, uh, September 2nd. That you know me to be quite the cynic when it comes to things that people say about what they saw and whether they did this and whether they did that. And we have so many stories over the past six years of people saying they know things, and none of this ever goes anywhere. You know, of course, we have some uh, inmate, some prisoner saying, Oh, yeah, I heard something in the, in the jail yard claiming that this guy made John Doe disappear. and You know what I think about all of that. I think all of it's crap. In addition, my issue is that generally people do not confess to murdering people just because. Yes, maybe going back to Carlos Rodriguez, he did, but I think those are totally different circumstances. Uh, He was already a suspect. They had gone to his house once. Of course, they failed to find Zoe the first time around, but uh, totally different in, in my opinion situation. Where he's in the custody of police, they are putting pressure on him. Whereas in this situation, Melinda's just showing up out of nowhere, tracking these people down who are free people living there in, Manito- in Thompson, Manitoba, and just out of nowhere, you know, this woman just says, "Yeah, my my boyfriend did it." You know, telling the same story that she told way back when Sean went missing. Well, we have to remember something: just because a person's story is consistent doesn't mean it's true. I know we – the cliche is that people can't keep their lies straight. Actually, people can keep their lies straight as long as they keep it very simple. (laughs) As long as they don't get too detailed, you can say a lot of things to a lot of people, and they will never know that you're lying. In addition, we as humans believe that we can tell when people are lying to us. The truth is we can't. We are getting lied to all the time, and the fact is, unfortunately, even myself included, because I'm human too. Sometimes we do lie to people. Maybe not in the most nefarious of ways, but it could be just you know, it could be just something as simple as if a girlfriend asks you, "Hey, do I look fat in this dress?" There's no good way to answer that. <laughs> so, regarding this. Uh, Of course, I want to be hopeful. I want Sean's disappearance to be solved. I could certainly believe that he was murdered. Uh, Sean out there, Sean involved in some things. He shouldn't make bad choices. Not necessarily harmful, you know, violent or anything. But I, you know, just making some bad choices in his life. So because of that, it would not surprise me if he was murdered. But I don't know if I'm going to believe it because this woman says so, just because she kept her story straight. And, you know, from some years ago, too often, too many of my guests, more than probably you will ever know, are told a lot of things that they are convinced is true and they don't end up being true. They don't end up becoming true. It's nothing. So, uh, like I said, it, it's easy for me to talk. I'm in Clearwater Beach, Florida. She's up there in Manit- Thompson, Manitoba, looking these people in the eye. I'm not trying to be a know-it-all. But if it was really just this simple of somebody, you know, just out of nowhere confessing to her on a city street in Thompson, Manit- Manitoba, I think this would have been solved a while ago. It just sounds to me like. These people maybe don't have all the marbles in their head, my impression. Uh, not to be negative, but I am a cynic. I've just seen too many of these things never pan out. So um, that's where we are. I mean it's an update. She's out there. I think, I think she's doing the right thing. I think Melinda being out there is absolutely the right thing to do. I encourage her to do that just to be safe. But I also know that you just can't believe people because they tell you what you want to hear. It very well could be that they're lying. And so to keep your emotions in check until they provide some sort of proof. It's just – if it's just words and they aren't willing to lead you off into the woods or somewhere to where uh, the body is, then it really doesn't mean anything. It's just the way it is. But I – more people should be doing what Melinda is doing. You just have to be very um, cautious with your optimism. And that's the update for Sean Ginyard. Next update Tom Brown. Thomas Kelly Brown was an 18-year-old from Canadian, Texas. He was the president of his class and loved acting and public speaking. On the night of November 23rd, 2016, Thomas was on his way home after hanging out with friends. He stopped, stopped to get gas in his Dodge Durango. He was never seen again. And as you all know, I mean, unless you've been living under a rock when it comes to listening to Unfound, you know that Tom Brown's remains were found by ex-deputy Pine Gregory, by seemingly by accident. He told me it's by accident. I have no reason to believe otherwise, but some people don't believe that. But he came across at least parts, a part of Tom in late January, early February of 2019. This is a disappearance that we covered during the summer of 2018. And the weird thing about doing this update episode is that – uh I have updates for all four in a row. So back at the time, uh, we covered Zoe Campus' disappearance, and then the next week we covered Sean Guignard's, and then Tom Brown's. And then I'm going to have an update for Amanda Fravel after this, and she was the next week. So a lot lot of things going on, some of these disappearances we covered during the, the summer of 2018. I don't know how that's just some odd thing. I think it's just a statistical anomaly or something. Anyway, um, once again though, to say it again, unless you've been living under a rock regarding everything – regarding Unfound and its relation to the investigation into what actually happened to uh, Tom, you know that I would say really since probably three years ago when they had that meeting with – The attorney general's office, investigators, and and then some of Tom's family, and Phil Klein, the the private investigator that the family hired not long after Tom went missing. You know since then that it's been pretty dramatic, a lot of finger-pointing. We know that Sheriff Nathan Lewis resigned uh, for a few different reasons I think eventually. And there's a new sheriff, although he was a deputy in Hemphill County at the time of Tom's, Tom's disappearance and did take part in the investigation into what happened to Tom. But that guy is now the sheriff. And really what is going on now and has been going on for a while but really escalated this summer is that there is this guy. His last name is Crane, C-R-A-I-N. And he has been doing interviews, and in although most of the time when I talk about any of this on the live show, I never mention the radio station or the radio host. But do this—this being an update episode—and uh, so you know, all know what I'm talking about. It is Chris Samples' radio show on KXDJ in Texas. I think this uh, this guy who is some for, uh, former investigator for the state of Texas. Was he in the Texas Rangers or something like that? He has become very prominent in being a cr- uh, very critical of everything regarding – not necessarily investigation, but critical of Phil Klein and Tom's family, Penny, uh, and the rest of them, uh, her son Tucker, and her husband who is – not Tom's father and any of other close family members in alleging that some cover up happened on the night that Tom went missing now there are there is a group of uh, of you out there uh and one guy in particular who I do talk to once in a while, and I think we're friends but he and I don't necessarily see eye-to-eye eye on it, but we can have a cordial conversation about it, and I, I deeply respect him for that, I hope he respects me for that too. There is a significant portion of the unfound audience who, is, who has started to believe this. For, this is just an example that Tom got home that night, committed suicide, or something happened that they chose to cover up his death. And then everything out after that was just a show. Them going to look for him and acting like they were concerned about him and everything, it was just all a put-on. And this is what Crane has been saying. I've not listened to every interview that he did. I think I listened to the first two. I believe that he's been on there four times. For example, I've not listened to the most recent one, which was just within the last few weeks. Maybe even within the month of August of 2022. I've not listened. It's just a little too much for me. Uh, I, I think that I'm on the record. I've talked about this on a couple live shows. When it comes to rooting between Phil Klein and this crane guy who seemingly has come out of nowhere this year, if you were asking me to pick between both of them, I would be rooting for the asteroid from Armageddon. I don't think there's much to like regarding either of them. That doesn't mean that I think that they are liars. I just don't think that they're very professional. I just don't think that. Um, Phil Klein did this presentation last Uh, October that I talked about in the update episode at the end of 2021 where he went through all these things. There are things in there that I don't think any really educated, experienced investigator would ever bring up or ever even take seriously. But he brings them up. For example, there was this betting ring going on regarding Canadian football. No proof of it. He didn't offer any proof that that exists, that that happened, but he talked about it. So I don't know how I'm, I'm supposed to respect an investigator like that. Likewise, when it comes to Crane, my impression of him, him is that he he's just looking to get into all of this. Uh, is he retired now? So he needs some new hobby or new form of income to go along with a state pension or something, and he needs a new outlet. And so he's jumping into this, and it's – and as I've stated, Tom Brown's disappearance is come become a cottage industry. You want to start a podcast, you want to get on the map, that's a good place to start if you think like that. Now, I'm happy to say that Unfound covered his disappearance before it became a thing. And in fact, some people would say it became a thing because of Unfound's coverage, the three and a half hour episode that I did during the summer of 2018. Um, I just think that it's... I just think that it's gotten it's gotten so crazy. I got I won't tell you who it was, but somebody recently sent me a message saying, How can you you know how can you let people attack Phil Klein in your discussion group on Facebook? How can you let them go after him and badmouth him? It's become a bash bash session for Phil Klein and how can you let this happen? I wrote back to this person and said you know, if if Phil wants to make all, shut up all the haters, all he has to prove is what he thinks happened to to Tom and that Tom was murdered. That's all he has to do and then everybody'll shut up. And he'll get to march down the middle of Canadian Texas saying, "See all you haters, you didn't think I knew what I was talking about, but I did. That he is so worried about people talking about him. You know, I have people talk about me too." If people bad say bad things about Unfound about me, the host, maybe you've seen some of the comments on YouTube. Maybe you've seen some of the reviews on on iTunes and things. You know, people tell me once in a while. A listener will tell me, "Hey, have you seen this here?" I probably don't because I really don't follow that stuff. But I know it's out there. People, you know, still complaining about the audio of, of the podcast and everything else. I get haters too, but you know i don't I don't pay attention to them or feel that I have to go out and dispute them uh even to one millionth that Phil Klein feels that he has to do, and it's weird to me um. If if I didn't know that Phil Klein was a licensed private investigator in Texas, I would think that he was a licensed attorney in Texas because he more these days sounds like the the Browns and or Penny Meek, she's now married again, that that family's defense attorney. I thought investigators were supposed to be looking for the truth and looking for facts, not being spokespeople. Uh Penny as she proved On the interview that I did with him, with me, she can more than well speak for herself. She's very well-spoken, obviously intelligent, obviously has everything in her mind that she wants to say. You want to think that she's lying? You can do that. But she is more more than capable of talking and representing herself and her family and her feelings and all her thoughts on Tom's disappearance. You know, I, I just, it, it just sounds to me, if you didn't know Phil Klein was a private investigator, you wouldn't know it because he sounds like a defense attorney. And as we know, when it comes to at least defense attorneys and maybe even prosecutors too, sometimes they aren't necessarily interested in the truth. What's the old saying? If you can't argue, you know, if the tr- facts aren't on your side, argue, uh, what is it? argue the the truth and if the truth isn't just argue the facts or whatever that saying is it's kind of like what feels like is going on here you know I am not here to protect anybody's uh, reputation now I I I will protect uh, the guests and certainly some people have come after Penny uh, and and all of that and I, I try to do what I can I try to do what I can. But I just want to assure anybody, I'm not on either of these sides. It very well may be that Tom Brown was murdered. Very well may be. I just wish everybody would stop talking about it and actually prove something. This, uh, the investigation into actually what happened to Tom is no further ahead than it was in August of 2019. Three years later, despite all the... Interviews and presentations and, and everything, all the other shows that have been done and podcasts about Tom's disappearance or death, we're still not any further ahead. So, um, you, you know, what else I would say is that we also have to remember this is that people, when we come to disappearances in general, And you can say this about uh, not just Tom's case, but Mara Murray's and Brian Schaefer's and a bunch of others. Believing that somebody walked off is not good for business if you are in the business of sensationalizing disappearances. And so I am inclined not just with Tom's. But with many, people want to believe something else because just saying that the person walked off because of this just isn't interesting enough. It's just not sensational enough. It's not going to get enough clicks and shares and likes and everything else. It's not going to further that person's career or anything else. Once again, I'm perfectly open to the idea that Tom was murdered. I don't see any facts to support that. Um, I, he could have walked off maybe but everybody is just so dang sure of anything but nobody's proving anything so what's going on now that you know where this really update is going is that now uh Phil Klein and company you know they're suing Crane for what he has been saying on Chris Sample's show regarding all these allegations that there was some sort of cover up and everything else I have to admit I'm no fan of Phil Klein, and I don't even know if he's going to be successful, but I really can't blame him. This is one of the reasons we don't do these types of things on Unfound on the Friday episodes regarding theorizing and conjecturing and pointing fingers and, and everything else because we're trying to avoid that stuff. And certainly we have covered many disappearances where it's pretty clear what happened. And still, at least in my mind, we play things pretty straight, even in a situation like Angela Green's, who her her husband said, oh, yeah, she went to an insane asylum or some facility, and he couldn't prove that. And then he said she died, and he couldn't prove that. even in a situation in a disappearance like that, we covered it pretty straight down the line, and I actually interviewed the daughter, Angela Green's daughter. We still played it pretty straight. So, when I hear somebody going on a radio show and making these allegations that can't be proven and l- making logical leaps that I, you know, can be, you know, go in a dozen different directions, but this person just happens to believe it goes in one direction, I just, don't, I just don't think it's very smart. I don't think it's very professional. And so then I have to start thinking maybe there's just something else going on. And it very well may be that this person sees an opportunity to make a name for himself, and I guess, I guess we'll see where all this goes. Um, uh, once again, I have a lot of problems with Phil Klein, uh, but I certainly do not believe that I've ever slandered him. Uh, now I will tell you that my some of my assistants feel far worse about him than I do. He just. Uh, I, I just doesn't seem very professional to me, and I, I just think if you look at his track record, and I was just talking about him, um, you know, regarding uh, Olivia Newton John and her ex-lover who went missing, Phil Klein was involved in that. He claimed he solved that, that he tracked this guy down, Patrick. And I didn't write into my notes here. There's no proof that Phil Klein did that. He said he did. There's no proof of that, and in fact, the ex-wife of the missing guy had not one good word to say about Phil Klein, Not one good word. And you can find it. That's out there publicly. You you can find it for yourself. So I guess we're going to see where all this goes. Uh, It's just just become a little bit uh, of a sideshow here. And I'm still open to all possibilities, but not because any of these people say so. So that's the update for Tom Brown. Next update. This might be a first for this disappearance as well. Amanda Fravel. Amanda Lee Fravel was an 18 year old living in Las Vegas, Nevada. In 1985, she had moved there from California due to a turbulent home life. On Friday, the 13th of June, 1986, Mandy left her apartment to get a paycheck from her job. She never reached her destination. She was never seen again. The update here is that uh, this summer, uh, her disappearance has gotten some national attention on Dateline. Uh, I'm sure if you uh, Google uh, her name now, uh, her if you had done that if maybe just a few months ago, the only thing that might have come up is the episode we did back in 2018 uh, covering her disappearance when her sister Melissa was on. And... Uh, Now that I'm thinking about it, it it does seem that maybe we did have an update on Amanda's case a while ago, though, Uh, maybe a year and a half ago, because there was a serial killer who uh, was caught, and he might have been in Las Vegas around the time that Amanda went missing, and the FBI actually contacted Melissa, Amanda's sister, to talk to her about this. In fact, they might have even met in person uh, some agent to talk to uh, Melissa about this. So maybe Amanda has appeared on uh, an update episode before. But other than that, uh hasn't been a lot of national news on her disappearance except for unfounds coverage. Well, now if you Google her name, you'll find this Dateline article and some other things that have come up. And I'm not going to read the article. Uh, you can do that for yourself. But in the article, it does name Lou Franks, who was allegedly – Her roommate at the time, how they met, no idea who he is, no idea. Uh, Myself and my assistant, Sheree, have tried to track this guy down. We found some Lou Franks, but not even sure if we have the spelling right. Uh, There are a lot of guys named Lou Frank out there. Uh, Just don't know. Uh, And even a couple with some criminal records, but good luck trying to tie them to Las Vegas in 1986. But he does get mentioned, his or the name is mentioned in the article, and the other name that was prominent, that has been prominent, was the guy, uh, allegedly an ex-boyfriend at the time, Xavier Romano, who uh, – the story went, at least when the episode came out in 2018, is that she was going uh, to get this paycheck and then was going to go to his house – I got to speak to Xavier way back when, and he just claimed that, yeah, she never showed up. And so he ended up going up out with uh, some other um, girl. So – and they weren't a couple anymore anyway. I I can't remember why they weren't a couple anymore. I just don't know. But what continues to be significant to me is that – If you were to go to Xavier's uh, Facebook page, you will find a lot of pictures of women he was friends with, who he dated back in the um, 1980s. He is certainly older than I am. I'm not sure how much older, but let's just say 10 years older. So he's probably in his early 60s now. But uh, going back to the early 80s, he has these pictures of uh, these women who were his girlfriends, but... You get to around the year 1986, and there's like a blank spot there, and then he starts posting about women uh, that he dated or really was friends with or whatever, uh, like in 88. There are no pictures of Amanda on his page, even though he has pictures of all these other women he's friends with and dated at the time. So there's that. Uh, my understanding is even back a couple years ago or four years ago, I guess now when I spoke to Xavier, seems to be having a lot of health problems. Uh, I'm not sure what. Uh, I don't think it's cancer or anything, but it might be something more uh, overall debilitating to the overall uh, body. So I don't even know what kind of condition he's in. I, I think he is still alive. But uh, I went to his page recently. He's not posted anything on his Facebook page for at least uh, maybe a year and a half or something. So, But that is the update. Uh, finally, Amanda Fray will get some national coverage on Dateline. I'll just have to see if it goes anywhere. Next update, Barbara Frame, uh, at least the kind of one. Barbara Sue Frame was a 38-year-old from Zanesville, Ohio. She was the mother of three and worked for the subsidiary of a car manufacturer. On January 30th, 1985, at approximately 5 p.m., her ex-husband came over to tell Barbara their divorce lawyer needed to see her. Barbara left the house for this appointment. She was never seen again. The only real update here is if you'll remember maybe from a year ago uh, on an update, I had mentioned that some remains had been found in Zanesville. And, a, and an abandoned house or somebody or some construction company was tearing down a building or a house or something, and human remains were found. Uh, I looked just recently – I'm doing this recording on August twenty fourth, 2022. I haven't found any updates since then. Maybe that was back in – maybe it wasn't a year ago, not quite a year ago, but I would mentioned it on a former uh, previous update episode, maybe number 10. Maybe Update episode number 10. And there's there's been nothing since then. So I don't know what to make of that. We know that DNA testing takes time. And DNA testing only works if you have some other DNA to, to match it to it. So I, I'm not sure what to think. But some of you uh, surely remember me talking about these remains being found and thinking, hey, this could be Barbara. We have no idea. I did look it up. I think there are two other people missing from the Zanesville area, and so I guess the possibility could be one of theirs, or it could be somebody totally different, uh, totally different than any of them. But uh, no update on that. Next update: Dory Ann Myers. Dorian Myers was a 43-year-old from Vero Beach, Florida. She had a son and loved poker. On the evening of January 10th, 2006, Dory went out to a couple bars and ended up back at her house, allegedly with two military vets. Early the next morning, Dory's house and car were found on fire. She was never seen again. Now to uh, maybe go a little deeper into that uh, general description – Her house in Vera Beach slash uh, Fort Pierce uh, slash Liquid Ranch, it's all kind of where those points meet, Uh, her car was found uh, in like 80 miles away or something. So if you don't remember that, I'm reminding you that the car was found on fire but not right in her driveway, for example. It was far, uh, far away from there. And you may also remember that this was the first disappearance that I covered with Dr. Telesco when we started doing those live shows in 2020. Well, out of the blue, and I cannot say, I could not tell you how happy I was to get a message from him. Out of nowhere, Dory's son, Jesse, messaged me just within the last two weeks. Out of nowhere. I've never spoken to him before. I don't think I've ever attempted to reach him before, just not that I was ignoring him or anything, but uh, just really um, – I'm not saying it didn't come to mind, but it just wasn't something that popped into my head. I, of course, knew he existed. I didn't know where he was or anything. Well, it turns out he's right here in Florida. He's in Fort Lauderdale, and I, I have to admit he's a little older than i uh expected he's actually in his early 40s for some reason when i th- when dory went missing in 2006 for some reason it was in my mind that he was like a teenager uh but obviously or even younger than that maybe 11 12 years old obviously not since this disappearance was 16 years ago which means he was about 26 when this happened way older than i thought also might have been a reason that uh i Didn't get in contact with him, I think, because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe he was too young to really understand everything that was going on anyway, and he did not live with his mother at at that house that eventually got burned. So he ended up contacting me. His name is Jesse, and he's 42 years old, so that certainly changes things. We had a great conversation. In fact, uh, as I was recording, starting to record this episode yesterday, he he was texting me. We text back and forth uh, a few times, but we talked for like an hour and a half uh, a couple days ago, had a high-quality conversation. He talked to me about his impressions at the time, what he remembers. He was in Milwaukee at the time and uh, then was contacted, I think, by, uh, of course, someone in their family. Uh, About what was going on But it it took a few days I think for him to find out And then he talked about going down there And I I really don't want to get into everything We talked about Uh, I I don't think that he would mind You know going on the record uh, At some point with a conversation I don't know if we're ready to do that right now though But um, But um we talked about a lot of other things, some of the other things that were going on in Dory's uh, family at the time that were not included with Donna Jean for one reason or another, and I'm not going to get into those things. Just to give me a little more background about Dory, and and uh, I, I want to you, assure you there's nothing that I heard uh, from Jesse to believe that uh, she was into any sort of nefarious activity, no addictions, no vices or anything anything like that. Um, uh, I will tell you that uh, Donna Jean, who is now deceased, uh, very sad she died in October of 2019, uh, kind of did tell me maybe things when she and uh, Dory were a lot younger. They were doing some things probably they shouldn't have been doing. But by the time uh, Dory got into her 40s, Donna Jean got into her 40s. Those things were long behind them. Of course, Dory had her own house. She had her own job. uh, She had pets. She had a car. She was doing very uh, well for herself. So I don't want any of you to think that uh, maybe if that was in the back of your mind, could she have been into some nefarious activities with somebody and this was because of that? There's nothing that I heard with Jesse to, to, to cause me to believe that. Uh, Dory did have two ex husbands. I'm not sure, you know, I, I didn't go back and listen to the original interview I did with Donna Jean in preparation for this, but I don't remember Dory having two ex husbands, so maybe Donna Jean didn't bring them up. Maybe I knew that Dory had been married once before, but she had two ex husbands, and I will tell you that Jesse totally rules them out as suspects. Also talked to Jesse about my impressions, not necessarily uh, all about Dory's disappearance, but just about my attitude toward disappearances in general. And one of the things that I told him was there are these sketches of these two men who allegedly were at the bar where Dory was that night. And I I was telling Jesse – Two strangers, two men, uh, going to a woman's house and, you know, as it seems – I'm not saying this is what happened, but the way it seems – is so rare. Uh, We have – of course we have some disappearances where we think that multiple people are involved, maybe like Tyler North's murder, and I'll be talking about uh, him in a little bit here, but… The situation we are talking about here where a woman is murdered and there's reason to believe – or disappeared, but we believe, of course, that Dory was murdered – to believe that two men got together who didn't know her, it is so, so rare. I mean as you know, most of the time when we're talking about disappearances that we believe are murders, They're pulled off by one person, or it's uh, some sort of luring like happened with Tyler North or something like that. Dory's circumstances of of her two meeting – if this is what happened, of her meeting two guys and going back to her place and then seemingly having a good time, and then all of a sudden they turn on her. If this was a thing, we would have multiple, multiple, multiple stories like this all over the United States, and we don't, whether it's a disappearance or a murder or it's an attempted rape and the woman got away. We would have all sorts of stories in the news about something like this. We don't, which to me has always caused me to doubt the circumstances as they have been portrayed. Now, of course, that leads us to uh, Dory's ex-boyfriend, Joe, and because he is the one who said he called Dory on that night, which it was a Friday night by the way. And said that she picked up the phone, uh, her phone, I don't know if it was a landline or a cell phone, and she said, yeah, she was here, and she had met two guys out. They're military vets. They're just having a good time here, and that's – so we get this two men at her house story from her ex, which – not not saying he did it, but I don't know. We know. Uh, disappearances are caused by relationships most of the time. Now, you should know, though, Jesse told me that the police looked into Joe, and I now know his last name, but I'm not going to mention here. And I actually was able to track him down and give that information to Jesse. But uh, whatever Jesse wants to do with it, because Jesse said, you know, I really don't know what has happened to Joe after after all these years, really don't even know where to look. Well, uh, Joe is here in Florida, but... So we have this story that Joe told when he w- showed up there uh, at the place at the play at Joe uh Dory's house that was burned gutted it was not burned down in fact if you look at Google Street View the house is still there it's just boarded up up it's completely gutted inside nobody has torn it down or anything I really didn't even talk to Jesse about why that is but um You know, he was the one who told the police that he called and she was with these two guys. And so the 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 police, the investigators, went to this bar already with the idea in the in their head, we're looking for two guys. Well, there's a sort of confirmation bias that goes on here, and I've talked about this before, I think, even including Dory's disappearance, but I'm gonna talk about it again. Generally people want to help the police. So if an investigator shows up and asks a bartender, hey, we have some information of this missing woman, Dorian Myers. Maybe you've heard about it. We have information to believe that she was met two guys here and went back to her uh, her place, and these guys could be responsible. Well, that is putting in that bartender's mind that if they want to be helpful, then they already start thinking about Men who were at the place when Dory went missing. Not, we can't forget this was done days later, not the next day, days and days later after Dory disappeared. So the person wants to be helpful, and so the person just starts, you know, randomly. My guess is just starts randomly thinking about guys that might have been there that night, and it might not even even been the right night. And it might not even been men who Dory talked to because there's confirmation bias, because the investigator probably said two men, the guy, the bartender, whoever, female two, starts thinking two men instead of an investigator saying, hey, you know, Dory Myers, did you see anything suspicious? Can you tell me about anything? My guess is the investigator probably said two men, and then it, it goes from there that then they just start thinking about two men instead of maybe nobody. So that is a concern of mine uh, regarding all of this. And of course, uh, Jesse and I also talked about it. What are the odds that two guys could do something like this and not talk about it, one role on the other or something? That's true, but on the other hand, and we that's true, but... On the other hand, we have to think about a disappearance, the disappearances of Laura Bio and Ashley Freeman, where we now know three men were responsible. And although they did not necessarily keep their actions quiet, it certainly didn't get out, you know, wide enough for police to act on anything until around 2018-2019. And it, we now know that there were people around these three men who knew what they did and just kept their mouth shut for fear or whatever. So I guess if, we're, if you're inclined to believe that two men, two strangers she just met that night uh, did this, then we have to be open to the idea that maybe they could keep it a secret. Or maybe they just haven't kept it a secret, but there are other people who know who have just decided to keep their mouth shut too. Uh, we did talk about where the car was found and how it was burned, and if that area was significant in any way um, to uh, Dory or anybody else. Uh, the son thought that Dory might have known. He, re- he really thought, no, nope, not at all. However, he did tell me one story, and this is not to bias all of you. I'm just telling you what he said, and I don't think that he would mind me saying this. This is something probably that would come up in an official interview anyways. that – Um, Dory and Joe did have a, you know, volatile relationship. Nothing that rose to the, you know, any charges or, you know, crimes or or anything like that. But, uh, Jesse did tell me that when the two were together, Dory and Joe were together, when they did go up to uh, Milwaukee where Jesse was living at the time, months and months before Dory went missing, um... When they were still a couple, and we also have to remember they did go on a cruise together with, what, Dory's parents just in December, I think, just a month before this. Um, something had gone on between Dory and Joe, and Joe ended up breaking a window at Jesse's place, like a, a back sliding door window or something like that. Could have been an accident, could have been on purpose, could have been unintended. Um, Jesse didn't say whether he made Joe pay for it or anything, so there's that. Um, Unusual? I've never broken any windows like that in my life. I guess most guys uh, haven't. Uh, And even so that doesn't mean if a guy breaks a window uh, that he ended up causing uh, uh an ex-girlfriend's disappearance so this is uh in general what we talked about we talked about threw around some theories and some ideas and and everything but it was great to talk to him i i'm hoping i can continue to talk to him about all of this it was a real surprise and uh that is the update for Dorian myers Next update, Jonathan Estes. Jonathan Paul Estes was a 35-year-old father of two from Bogue, Cheeto, Mississippi. He worked in construction and was active in his church. On June 2, 2018, Jonathan was at home and spoke to his, be- to his best friend. Jonathan then said he was going outside to see why the police were going up and down his road. He was never seen again. Now, you may remember that I got to talk to this best friend uh, to verify the story about Jonathan saying that there were police going up, going up and down his road. Uh, you know, I guess leading Jonathan to believe, you know, was there something going on, some uh, incident or something? And it was after here this that uh, jo- Jonathan was uh, once again never seen again. There was uh, there's still an idea. Of course, this disappearance is not that old. It's only four years old. That a police officer in the area could be involved in this disappearance because this police officer knew Jonathan's ex. Well, that is the update uh, here that this trial, if you will remember, after Jonathan went missing, uh, his ex-wife was um, selling off stuff and she sold off something called a bobcat, which is a small type of front loader used in construction, smaller jobs. And it wasn't hers to sell. And in fact, it was owned by Jonathan's father, and so um, if you'll even remember at the time, at the time we did this – I did this interview with Jonathan's uh, sister Melissa. It was a question, where did it go? It was eventually found. It was uh, returned to the rightful owner, and Jonathan's ex uh, wife was charged with this crime. I don't know how big of uh, a crime it is or anything, but well, that trial still hasn't happened. And uh sent a message to Melissa a few days ago to ask her about this. And she says, nope. And I don't think she has any idea when there is going to be a trial or anything. So This, of course, is not as big an issue as uh, Carlos Rodriguez, the murder trial for uh, for Carlos Rodriguez, but now it's done. Of course, Steve Pankey went to trial in 2021 and uh, hung jury, so I'm not sure what they're doing in Mississippi regarding this trial, which seems to me to be a little easier to bring to trial, a lot less moving parts and everything, so I don't know. But if you were wondering about that, trial and what's going on with her because it might lead to maybe lead more answer, lead to more answers of what happened to Jonathan. Uh, I guess we're just going to have to keep waiting. Next update, Molly Miller and Colt Haynes. Molly Miller and Colt Haynes were respectively 17 and 21 year olds from Wilson, Oklahoma. They'd only known each other a week, but might have been headed toward a relationship. On the evening of July 7th, 2013, Molly and Colt were passengers in a car that were got involved in a police chase. The vehicle got ditched, and the driver made it back to his house the next morning, while Molly and Colt seemingly got lost while trying to call friends to pick them up. They were never seen again. This is very much like... Uh, the update I did for Joshua Guimans that started this section of this episode in letting you know that there is a podcast devoted solely to Molly and Colt's case, and that is and the um, podcast is called Partners in Crime. However, I've not listened to it, so I don't know how far along it is, if it's still going on, how many episodes there are, how in-depth it is. I don't know, but maybe you want to check it out, that out if you're not familiar with it. So that's one of the updates. The the other update I would say is that there continues to be a lot of heat around their disappearances, and I think we can understand why. Unique circumstances, car chase, the driver of the car makes it home, fine. There is all the proof in the world to show that Molly and Colt were alive several hours after the chase ended, and after Nip, the driver, got home. And it's – I think it's hard for everybody still to figure out then what exactly happened. If Molly and Colt were murdered, how did anybody find them out there if they didn't even know where they were? You may say, well, they were at the car. Well, if they were at the car, then why didn't they just follow the tire tracks because this car went through all these weeds and grass, probably tire tracks easily going right back to the main road. Why didn't they just follow the tire tracks once it got light, if they were around the car, back to the main road and and flag somebody down? Moreover, if they were truly lost, if they started stumbling off in the dark, when the car got ditched, pitch black, I guess they had their phones, they could have used those as flashlights. Of course, the batteries could eventually go and burn out and die, certainly. but still the the phones were uh you know many hours later. Why didn't they call nine one one? I realize the sheriff in the air is very shady and everything else, but I think still uh, a lot of people, most people, if not all people, that's the choice they would have made. Maybe they're thinking, well, if I call the police, you know, they're going to know it was involved in the chase. But they were passengers in the car; they weren't driving. They can always say, "Hey, what do you want us to do?" Nip was the one that was driving. I, you know, I don't know how much trouble they would really would have gotten in anyway. Moreover, if they did stumble away from the car and ended up really being lost, truly being lost and telling, telling people, yeah, we're lost, well, how would then they explain to anybody how to find them if they didn't know where they were? So if they were alive for several hours after and they called somebody and this person just happened to have bad intentions, how did that person or that group find them if Colton and Molly didn't even know where they were themselves? And I think this just shows how far I've come regarding disappearances like these where people stumble off into the woods. Maybe we could think about Jason Landry's disappearance, which I may talk about later. Um, how is How are the disappearances of Molly and Colt any different than Jason's? Car wreck, uh, people stumbling off into the night and not found. And hardly anybody thinks Jason was murdered, although there is some kooky private investigator in Texas not Phil Klein, who thinks uh, that Jason was murdered. And coincidentally, Phil Klein at one time did work on Molly and Colt's disappearances. And it's just funny. Uh, you find an unsolved disappearance, and it's funny how Phil Klein's name will be atta- uh, attached to it. Um. Nobody really, really, really believes that, unless they're trying to get attention like this one person, uh, believes that Jason Landry was murdered. So what is it that causes people to believe Molly and Colt were murdered? I realize there are a lot of stories, a lot of rumors. That's it. Still nobody can show show me how anybody could have tracked Molly and Colt down if they themselves didn't even know where they were. And there were people who who we trust who heard them, you know, calling and saying, hey, we're out here. We don't know where we are. So it's a big question mark on this. And more and more, I start thinking maybe there wasn't foul play in this at all. Maybe this is just – maybe it was something else. Next update, Stephanie Clemens and – This could be a first one for her, too. I guess we're having quite a few first-timers on this update episode, and I think that's good. Uh, Although, technically, this is not about Stephanie's disappearance. It's just a weird coincidence. Uh, Stephanie Ray Clemens was a 54-year-old mother of four from Miramar, Florida. She worked at a hospital and had two sisters. On the morning of May 20th, 2018, so once again, another very new... Newer disappearance. A Sunday, Stephanie was at home. She spoke to her sister. Then Stephanie was later seen washing clothes at her apartment's machines. She was never seen again. The uh, coincidence, if you would call it that, is that I'm working on a disappearance right now that I'm hoping uh, will be featured on Unfound September, October. And this is a disappearance. Uh, Miramar is kind of down in that southeast Florida area Miami. There's a disappearance that uh, I've already spoken to um, a family member connected this missing woman, and I'm not going to say what the woman's name is right at this point. But, uh, and I think this is the woman's daughter they spoke to, and like a cousin who lived uh, elsewhere. But this person got a tax report. This person lives in Oklahoma person got some sort of form from the state of Oklahoma, and it had Stephanie Clemens and this other missing woman's name on it. And so it was – I'm just going to use Jane Doe and Stephanie Clemens, and it was addressed to this family member who I spoke to. And she had sent me the uh, paperwork. She took pictures of it, sent it through email so I could see it for myself. And this is in Oklahoma. Both of these disappearances are in Florida. And to look at it, it seems that even the IRS – here's something that's going on. Now, there is nothing to indicate that Jane Doe's disappearance and Stephanie's are connected in any way. Two very different people, um, no, no proof that they knew each other. I don't think they had any mutual friends, although maybe it might have been that Jane Doe, this missing woman, and this is also a disappearance. that's fairly new. I think it was from 2019, in fact, that this woman might have been stayed at the same hospital that Stephanie worked at, but I don't know how weird that is. Uh, at some point, but my d jerk reaction is that it 's some type 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 of scam that somebody uh, you know some scamster, identity theft or something, put these two names, missing women on there, trying to get some refund or something. And my impression of the paperwork that was sent to this this Jane Doe's family member was like, you know what? The IRS thought it was kind of strange, and so they were trying to get more information uh, regarding all of this. Now, this is the first – 264 disappearances in. This is the first time I've ever seen something like this. We know that identity theft goes on. We know that the IRS – you know, makes a lot of mistakes. We know that there are scams that are running uh, that are successful for a very long time. You've probably heard a lot of stories about uh, COVID COVID nineteen relief that people have ripped off and buying Lamborghinis and everything else. Might be something like that. Just don't know. Unfortunately, there's no information as to. Uh, the paperwork that the IRS got the, you know, or the state of Oklahoma got, we have no information about what the address – if there was a return address of whatever they got, people trying to file for funds or whatever this was. We have no information uh, at this point regarding any of it. So it seems like it's a scam uh, – certainly a scam. I, I just don't think that… Is there a possibility that whoever was doing this caused uh, Stephanie's disappearance? And I should tell you that my impression of Stephanie's disappearance is that, yes, she was murdered. And we talked a little bit about that uh, during the episode, although we didn't theorize. We talked about at least one person who makes a pretty good suspect who was in Stephanie's life at the time. And I will tell you with Jane Doe's, once again, not using her name, that... I'm inclined to believe that probably she was uh, a victim uh, of some sort of violence too, but surely not by the same person. So just something weird. Uh, obviously, many of my guests have been scammed in the past. A little different than this, though. This is, those have been more along the lines of, I know where your daughter is, send me money and I'll tell you. Of course, uh, maybe think of like a Tiffany Daniels' disappearance. I think that's one that comes to mind where that has, has gone on. Uh, whereas with this one, it has to do with tax records and Stephanie's and Jane Doe's names being on the same piece of paperwork and a family member in Oklahoma getting it from the IRS. And it, like I said, it seems to me it was like flagged like by the IRS or whoever. Like this does not seem right. But maybe we could be wrong. Of course, it was a scam. If I find out any more about it, I'll let you know. Next update, Tyler North. Tyler North was a 27-year-old from Harland County, Kentucky. He was the father of two and loved hunting and fishing. On the evening of Sunday, June 24th, 2018, Tyler left his sisters. He was allegedly headed home. However, Tyler turned into a local park instead. He was never seen again, and as a, and if you even listened to one update episode in the last couple years, you know uh, where this is going. We now know that Tyler was lured to that park by his ex-wife and her boyfriend. Their names were Michelle and Jeremy, and then Tyler's, north ended, uh, Tyler's truck ended up being torched. And even when I did the interview with his sister, Tyler's sister, I think it was in 2020, it was pretty clear what happened, even though um, Michelle and Jeremy were not charged with anything yet. Well, they eventually were, and remains were found. It took a while to identify them, but they eventually did find Tyler, including his uh, skull. Very, very sad. Very sad. Uh, That trial, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, This is kind of like Jonathan Estes' trial or Unique Harris's, which we'll talk about eventually here too. Just not sure when it's going to happen. But uh, the most noteworthy thing in the past four months has been a third person has been charged regarding Tyler North's death. And that guy's name is Joseph Morgan. He's from the area. Uh, My impression is that he knew Michelle and Jeremy very well. And this just happened maybe a month ago. Somebody who lives in the area who has been keeping tabs on all of this for me, um, taking pictures and following local news, uh, has been letting me know. And this guy Joseph Morgan has been charged with tampering with evidence and with abuse of a corpse in regards to Tyler's murder. I don't know if Joseph was there that night. There's nothing that I've heard to to believe that. This person who's keeping tabs, this listener, has not said anything like that. But somehow, after all this time, uh, they decided to charge this guy uh, with, um, I guess, helping. My impression, reading between the lines, is that uh, after Tyler was murdered, maybe Joseph helped in disposing of the body. You know, you know, someone they called him up, hey, we need some help. And so he assisted. Why he would choose to assist, maybe I'm guessing Joseph Morgan isn't a very good guy either. But also, in, in the update that this woman's been able to give me, is that I, I discovered how close Tyler's skull was found to where Michelle and Jeremy lived. And really, it was not that far away. I mean, it wasn't like in the backyard, on you know, like Zoe Campos and Carlos Rodriguez's house, but maybe, uh, I don't know, a few hundred yards, maybe 300, 400 yards away from where they lived is where Tyler's skull was uh, found. And she, uh, this listener had sent me a, Uh, A little diagram. She's gone there and taken some pictures, and then uh, she kind of circled a couple areas and showed me kind of the relationship between these couple areas. So that's the update. Joseph Morgan, uh, charged with tampering with evidence. Is he going to be tried with Michelle and Jeremy? I don't know, but it seems they're all still continuing to put uh, together the case. I guess then it means maybe we should be open to the idea that there are more people. Who were involved in this? Maybe not actually that night in the actual murder of Tyler, but people who became accessories after the fact. We just got to keep our eyes peeled for that. There you go. Next update April. Andrews, uh, this is—I uh, think she, her disappearance is appearing on here for the first time, but it's—it's uh, it's very sad news. April Dawn Andrews was a 15-year-old from Pea Ridge, Arkansas. She was a shy girl who had many siblings. On Saturday, November 18th, 2006, April and her family had taken a trip to a store. When they got back, April decided to walk to a local church that was having a clothing drive. She was never seen again. The update is that in May of this year, just a few weeks after the the previous update episode, uh, Tanya Washburn, who uh, is April's sister, who was the guest for that episode, died. Um, So May of 22 is when she passed away. My understanding is that she had fought cancer for quite a while. In fact, I think even before she was ever on Unfound, And uh, unfortunately, um, it took her life. I really did not talk to Tanya maybe too much after she was on uh, the episode. I really really did not go back and um, look into any of that. Uh, She might have posted some things in the group after she appeared. Once again, I think this was in 2020 when she was on Unfound. But uh, I would not say that I got to know Tanya really, really, really well. Certainly not as well as Joyce Rivetuzo or Mary Lyle or Lisa Kassoon as e- examples. But as I stated, going back to Tressie Palmer, who I talked about earlier in this episode, even so, these are people who um, you know, I feel for. And I was you know, always ready to help them at any time. And so uh, Tanya's uh, death is now number seven of guests guests that we have had on Unfound. Um, and once again, that's as updated, I, I admit, there may be uh, one or two other guests who have died that I just don't know about yet. Like I didn't know about Tressie Palmer's for a year and a half, and I feel very bad about that. But that is at least, uh, Tanya's death is at least number seven, and I will continue to say it. It hurts every time. Next update, Unique Harris. Unique Raquel Leona Harris was a 24-year-old from Washington, D.C. She was the mother of two and was getting ready to go to massage therapy school. On the night of October 9th, 2010, Unique put her children and cousin to bed. When the kids woke up the next morning, Unique was gone. She was never seen again. We now know that there is a guy, his name is Isaac Moy, M-O-Y-E, who got charged with Unique's murder, actually not long after Unique's mother appeared on Unfound in late 2020. Uh, and the update here is we still have no trial date. This is kind of like uh, just what we're talking about with Tyler North. Uh, we have a suspect, seems like a good suspect. I guess the difference is that... Tyler North's remains were found. Uniques haven't. So we don't know what uh, went on there, at least to my knowledge. But still no trial date as to when Isaac is going to appear in front of jury if it's even going to happen. Maybe he's going to do a Carlos Rodriguez and plead out, and only the jury the will only get to decide uh, Isaac's sentence. We just – I don't know. The big difference here may be that uh, there's nothing that I've read that Isaac has confessed to anything. So that, that maybe complicates things and, and how we want to think about this. But no trial date, and maybe if this is news to you that, yes, somebody has been charged. It has been determined that Unique and Isaac knew each other somehow. I don't know how. Um, he did not live he lived at least a few blocks away from where Unique lived, but this was not some stranger encounter where she went like down outside after she put the kids to bed, and he was just going by and did something to her. Uh, they knew each other uh, a lot better than that is my impression. So I think that we have to be thinking about um, some sort of domestic dismute. Uh, I know that Unique had this other – she had this boyfriend who had gone off to school. Was it in West Virginia I think? He was away at the time. Um, Maybe she had another boyfriend, and this was Isaac, maybe. And that's the update. Next update, Jake Lachelet. Jake Allen Lachelet was a 22-year-old from Brusley, Louisiana. Or is it Bruceley? He was a father who loved fishing. On August 27th, 2014, Jake had dinner with his grandmother and brother. After this, there were no, uh, no substantiated sightings of Jake, but his truck was found on a bridge overlooking the Mississippi River in the early hours of August 29th. Over 24 hours later, he was never seen again. Uh, you may remember that when I drove to speak at Northwestern State University in Louisiana last year, uh, my brother went with me. We went right over that bridge where the truck was found, right over over that bridge, same bridge, right there, over the Mississippi. Well, the update is uh, very recently, within the last two weeks, maybe the last week, uh, I got a very ugly message. I'm not going to say this person's name. But, uh, and when I get anything like this, of course, this gets forwarded uh, immediately to the guest, who in this case would be Jake's mother, Tina, I remember? And um, I... Not going to read the uh, entire thing, but I will tell you that it had everything to do with – of course, Jake had a daughter with his girlfriend who some believe could be a suspect in his disappearance, uh, believing that the truck being found on that bridge was all staged and that he died somewhere else, and they planted it there to make it look like he jumped off the bridge, if you want to believe that. Well, the message had to do with how Tina – you know Tina is uh, very energetic uh, about f- trying to find out what happened to her son. I think you could tell that in her interview, as I think every mother is, but um, Tina even more so. Let's just say, and she is, of course, she as you as you could uh, tell during the uh, episode, my interview with her, she has issues, a lot of issues with Jake's friends. Um, the mother of Jake's daughter, well, this must be some sort of uh person who contacted me um the related to the mother of Jake's daughter somehow very you know you, have, you know you need to hear about what Tina's been doing and how she's creating all these lies and and everything else she's making very difficult. For uh, for the raising of the daughter, who the daughter's like nine years old now, and on and on and on and on and on. And I will tell you my uh, attitude toward all of this when people, And I've gotten a few messages. Not this is the first one regarding Jake's disappearance, but I've gotten others like this, where somebody's not happy about what a guest said, and the guest you know is causing problems and they're making it difficult for the you know the the girlfriend or or whatever else this is not the first time I've gotten a message like this and uh you know I would not name the other disappearances that uh, you know that've been kind of like this where I've gotten messages like this but I got to tell you I have no patience for any of this uh Ed Denzel does not um I don't have a lot of patience. What is it? I don't suffer fools kindly I think is the Shakespeare term. Is that from Shakespeare? And I tried to reason with this woman in saying, you know, here Tina is. She's lost her son by whatever means, whether it was a suicide, whether it was an accident, whether it was murder, whatever it was. He's gone. But here you are. You have all your children. You know, the girlfriend is still around. The daughter is still around. Everybody still has all of their family members. It's Tina who's been the one who has been damaged here. And here you are writing me, you know, to complain about all this, where it's Tina the one who's been damaged. I asked the woman, have you, how shallow are you? Well, all that did was uh, cause her to. I'll write me back. And what I – you know, I try to reason with these people. This is how I handle it every time, every time this has happened. Not a lot of times, but when it happens. I try to reason with these people and say, you know, yeah, you're being inconvenienced. Yes, maybe Tina is doing whatever. I'm not there. I don't know. But she is the one who's actually lost somebody, and probably Jake isn't coming back. No matter what you may believe about what happened in his disappearance – Probably not going to reappear alive. Very sad. But I try to reason with these people, but all these people do is worry about themselves. How this is affecting their comfort in their lives. You know, whether Jake jumped off the bridge or was murdered, he was still missing. A mother is missing her son. And all these people can do is think about their own lives. And, of course, and like I said, I asked her, how shallow are you? And, but she replied with a long rant about how shallow I am. <clears throat> so I had to block her. She dropped some F bombs, and I just, when that happens, I just got n- nothing. I got no patience. Then I got the message from someone else, kind of the same thing with the same last name. Uh, also a woman, but with the same last name, different first name. So she came after me, too. And if they are listening now, I didn't even read that message. I blocked her too. Then the first person, woman who messaged me, actually wrote a review on uh, Unfun's Facebook page, basically saying a lot of the stuff that she had already sent kind of in that first message. And you should know I have the ability to delete those things or flag them. I did not delete it. I actually wanted to stay there. Why? Because I, and it's but the problem is it's not there anymore. I think Facebook took it down. I couldn't find it, and I'm actually kind of disappointed by that. You know, usually you get bad reviews or somebody complaining. You want it to go away as quickly as possible, but being that uh, I think in her posting this, it showed exactly the type of person that she is. I wanted it to stay. Facebook obviously thought differently. Like I said, right before I started recording all of this, I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. Maybe I missed it. But um, you know, I did. I want her to know if she's listening to this or whatever. Uh, I did not flag it. I did not delete it. Facebook did that. If it is now missing, I wanted everybody to see it because it had no capitalization, no commas, no periods, no paragraphs. It was about 300 words long. And this, I, I will say, given what I've experienced in this area and hosting this podcast, that's pretty standard. Um, when people write me to complain about something that uh, a, a guest has said, it's usually like that. It's not usually well constructed. It's you know, it's not proper English. They didn't even do spell check or anything. It's just one huge paragraph, a complete rant. No punctuation, no capitalization, no periods, no paragraphs. You know, I will tell all of you if you have a complaint, I'm not saying I'll agree with you, and I'm not saying we're going to have a very constructive conversation, but you could at least take the time to use punctuation and capitalization and paragraphs for me. At least do that. So uh, I wanted everybody to see that to show, you know, the kind of people person we're dealing with here and i'm sure when she messages other people she does use capitalization commas but this she didn't just a complete rant so i i just have one question for all these people would you rather be the opposite would it would you rather have it that you're the one who lost a son or daughter and you're maybe you know, suffering from PTSD, as many of my guests do, and depressed and everything. Would you rather be suffering like that, or would you rather have it the way you are? Now, I know you would rather have it the way you have it right now. You don't have any children missing. Then I would start having some compassion for these people who have lost their children, even if these people are causing you some convenience. And I will tell you this to anybody. If you think that somebody's lying... And I would even say this to the two people who wrote me that I'm talking about now, particularly the one person. If you think that Tina is lying and and doing the wrong things and everything, you should take her to court. If you think that she is wrong and and lying and slandering you and everything else, you should take her to court. Don't come crying to me. All I do is cover disappearances. I don't do child custody arrangements and all those things. I don't do that. Don't come crying to me. I covered disappearances, and I covered Jake Lachelet's disappearance. That's what I did. And I presented the facts. We talked about, yes, how he was having problems with uh, his girlfriend and all of that, as a lot of people do. That is always going to be a topic on Unfound. That's never going to change, no matter how many nasty emails I get, nasty messages. As far as all the other stuff, what Tina does in her own time, I have no control over that. And she wouldn't listen to me anyway even if I had her av- uh, any advice on that. And I have none because I'm not a parent. And I'm not a grandfather or anything. So I have no uh, insight into any of that. So she's not going to listen to me. So, uh, and I did tell Tina. She told her side of the story. I don't know what to believe. I don't know. What to believe. All I know is uh, we covered the disappearance itself, the way we covered all the other disappearances. Everything outside of that, uh, I don't 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 know what to tell you. All I would tell you is those people, you know, have some more compassion. I realize this is, you know, if this really is a pain, it is a pain. You gotta gotta understand that guests have uh, a lot of severe trauma. And uh, it's not all, always all about you and the ease of your life and whether you're going to get through the next day without any problems. That's what I have to say to all of you. Next update, Paul Sanders. And yes, now as you can tell, I'll probably tell we're getting very close to uh, the present time. Paul David Sanders was a 17-year-old from Mesa, Arizona. He was originally from Missouri and very athletic. On August 14th, 2001, someone—the person may or not, may or may or may not have been Paul—driving Paul's truck was pulled over by law enforcement in Tucson. A chase ensued in which the driver escaped. The truck was later found wrecked several miles away with no signs of Paul. He was never seen again. Um. I cannot even begin to tell you how much is going on behind the scenes regarding Paul's disappearance, despite it being over 21 years old. In fact, we just passed, what, the 21st anniversary, August. It's August 24th today, 10 days past. Um, The 21st anniversary, if you want to call it that. Uh, It's been a combination of my assistant, Carrie. Carrie. Uh, A listener who is in the think tank who has been, I think, listening to Unfound for a very, very long time. Her name is Jill. And Paul's sister, who was the guest for the episode, the three of them uh, have been doing incredible work uh, this summer. Uh, Really, really um, uh, deep work, and I'm going to get into that here in a moment. But I think that what's going on is, of course, Jill – Lives in the area where where this disappearance happened. Um, Paul's sister lives in Missouri, and uh, my assistant Carrie lives in Missouri. By the way, I, I've learned recently that is not her real first name. That's the real, but I just call her that, even though I know that's not her real first name. But um, they ha- have been working together, and they've been filing a lot of. Um, FOIAs. Lots going behind the scenes, and here are some things, and this certainly changes how the disappearance was portrayed when Paul's sister was on unfound. This just shows you how much work has been done and this just shows you after many years things can get distorted, and people saying things that you know saying things that aren't true um Here's I'm just going to read some of the things. Now I can't say everything. In fact, not long before I started doing this recording, I checked in with Carrie and Jill, checking out to make sure uh, how much I am allowed to say. And and this is the way it goes. I mean, I'm I guess the boss, but uh, I, as many of you know, I defer to my assistants on many things, and they're doing some work behind the scenes. And um, so when it comes to situations like this. Carry uh, Carrie uh, and company have become the expert on this. I am not. I'm the one who hosts the podcast. I'm the expert, of course, in many things. But I have no problem taking pointers, advice, instructions from other people who are working on disappearances. I don't always have to feel like I'm in charge. I'm not that guy. Anyway, um, here's what I've been allowed to say. Uh, The car chase was on Route 77 in Mesa, likely from Globe. Confirmed the official start of the chase was from Mammoth, Arizona to Oracle Junction. Here's a big difference. According to the paperwork that this group has been able to get, the truck was never pulled over. All this talk, as I just mentioned, and I'm just reading what the intro was back when the episode happened earlier this year. uh, The belief was that the truck was stopped and took off. The truck was never stopped according to the police paperwork, and then the cops ended up stopping the chase, and whoever it was got away. Now, there's another discrepancy. Discrepancy: The chase was not stopped because of the weather, and in fact, I will tell you that was a huge question mark in my mind at the time because I actually – before the episode came out, I checked the weather for that day, and – there was a path passing thunderstorm, but this is Arizona, and it doesn't rain that much. Of course, it can rain at any time; it just doesn't rain that much, like Las Vegas. Lived there for thirteen and a half years. Uh, maybe it rained thirty times in thirteen and a half years. You know, it's rare, but it still happens. So I'm open to the idea, but there might have been a passing thunderstorm that day, but nothing. You know, it wasn't a de- deluge all day, so that was a big question mark in my mind. Now we know, according to the police paperwork, the chase was not stopped during the weather – due to the weather. The chase instead was stopped because they had, the chase was so bad they had put out those stopper sticks, you know, the puncture of the tires. You've seen the chases like on YouTube. And the truck was able to get around them or something, and one of the, the cop cars or uh, some innocent citizen's car uh, tires got popped instead. So that's why they stopped the chase, and this is all from the Oro Valley uh, Freedom of Information Act request that they got. Um, and I'm reading here: chase uh, the car. The chase was stopped because he avoided stop sticks that ended up hitting another car. There you go. That's what she sent me, and and so that they believe happened around Oracle Junction and Redding. this the truck. Where it was eventually found was between Oracle Junction and Reddington Pass. And I'll continue reading. We have FOIAs from Oro Valley, Pima County, and DPS. uh, and and, uh, The DPS one is on the way. Also, we have made contact with several uh, friends and family of Paul from Arizona. Uh, And the FOIAs they've gotten are from Mesa, Oro Valley, Pima, TPS, and... DPS and Pinnell, P-I-N-A-L County, are in progress. They're also awaiting FOIAs from the BLM, so Bureau of Land Management, the reason that's where uh, the car was, the truck was eventually found. It was on Bureau of Land Management property. And they're also awaiting a FOIA from uh, the FBI, if you can believe it. But they've gotten these other ones from Mesa, Oro Valley, and uh, – Although I'm not going to point out the problem places, but they have uh, this group, this group of Carrie, Jill, and Paul's sister. Um, I've had nice things to say about a couple of these departments and maybe some not nice things to say about a couple of the other departments as far as working with them, getting information. I'm just going to leave out who is good and who is bad. But uh, moving on, what they said I was allowed to say was that Paul was known by friends and family as being known as driving like a grandpa. He was a very slow driver. But according to uh, the reports, is that the driver in the truck in the pursuit was a confident and very capable driver and outmaneuvered law enforcement. So you have to do that. Um, and in fact, that is the reason that this driver was skilled enough to avoid the stop sticks, Um uh, instead, uh, law enforcement or somebody ran over them flattening the, the tire and that's why they stopped the chase. So where is this all going? So how is it that this, these stories got started about the truck being actually stopped and the chase being stopped due to weather? This is a question I asked the last question I asked before I came to this microphone today. This is the response I got. uh, um, Paul's sister was not involved in this conversation. These are conversations I've had with Jill and Carrie. And so I asked, so where did the weather and truck stopped stories come from? Their answer? Paul's father, Robert. But we now know that those two two stories, according to the FOIAs from the police-owned paperwork, are not True. So I'm anticipating that when we do the next – or when I do the next update episode in December, I'm sure I will have a lot more to talk about regarding this disappearance given the work that um, these uh, women are doing, such spectacular work, and I think it's excellent. I, I wish more people would get you know involved in this, so I give a, a huge shout-out to Jill and Carrie and, of course, to Paul's sister for working together on all of this and clarifying things. On a disappearance that's over twenty-one years old, and this is, I think, what this is what everybody can learn, especially family members who have disappearances that are, you know, what we would call old, twenty years and, and over. Uh, there's always time to sort things out and learn new things and to correct the record uh, if the record has gotten distorted over the years. And obviously, this record has been distorted for a very long time. Why? It's going to leave you to uh, ponder that. Next update Rhonda Smith. Rhonda Eileen Smith was a 21 year old from Noonan, Georgia. She was tall, about six feet in height, and had been in the U.S. Army. On February 27, 1984, Rhonda left her home early to go shopping. Rhonda's vehicle was later found at an Atlanta mall. She was never seen again. Now, I'm guessing this one's kind of fresh in your mind. We're getting very, very close to the present. This is a disappearance we covered back in May of 2022. Uh, You remember that she was driving uh, a vehicle that was given to her by her uh, fiancé from the work, the, the job that he had. This pickup truck that somebody else drove, that was the vehicle that was found there. And uh, after the episode came out, uh, of course, within the uh, the last couple months, I actually got contacted by one person through email and then another person through Instagram, and they they were different people, but they both had the same last name, and they're saying, you know, I got more information, I need to talk to you, you know, uh, Nancy Llewellyn, who was the guest for that episode, who is. was... Um, uh, Rhonda's cousin I thought Nancy did a fantastic interview uh, and she's been working on Rhonda's disappearance for a while uh, you know I know Nancy but you need to hear this and everything and I'm just going to say what I said back uh, when we when I covered Donald Irwin's disappearance an hour ago however long ago that was um, I appreciate it that people want to tell me things but you they have to understand that it's probably not something I'm going to be act going to be able to act on. Um because once again, I do of course do my own work behind the scenes on things that sometimes I don't like to talk about. But if somebody is contacting me and saying, Oh yeah, well I know Nancy, but you need to know this, I I'm really just like, well, I, I Not that I don't love information, I do, but I'd rather, you know, Nancy is going to be the one who's continue going to work on this maybe every day, or, you know, I am not. I'm certainly willing to help, give her pointers, give her suggestions. If there's something, information she can't get, maybe I can get her for her, but I'm not going to be working on Rhonda Smith's disappearance or any other disappearance every day. That's just really not what I do. Um... I mean, the closest I came to that was way back in 2019 with Cameron Remmers. And even that was not surely every day. So, um, you know, I just told this person, you know, just, if you got something to say, just tell it to Nancy. If you know her, I realize that you want to uh, tell me things. And, I, you know, and given how the email was worded and the message on Instagram, it kind of sounded to me like it was just going to be more rumor type of stuff. Well, uh, you know, Rhonda's ex fiance he said this, he said that, he did this, he did that, and of course, her ex, uh, her uh, fiance at the time, certainly a, a suspect might consider him being responsible for Rhonda's disappearance. Maybe uh, it, it certainly seems to me that Rhonda's family feels like that. I don't know how many, much proof there is of that. But if it's, so it's especially along those lines, then I just, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Of course, we don't even, you know, really talk about a lot of that stuff on episodes anyway. Well, he allegedly said this and he allegedly said that, and I heard him say this and I heard him say that. As long as the guest knows these things, that's good enough for me. Now, if the guest wants wants a guest, for example, uh, Nancy, and I'll have you know that Nancy has not contacted me after these two people contacted me. She's not written to me and said, hey, these two people contacted me or anything like that. But if she were, I'd certainly talk to her about it. Certainly. But I'd rather it just go through um, her. Um, Especially when the person says that He knows Nancy and has helped, you know, been helping Nancy and everything. Uh, Now, it might be a different situation if it's actually factual information, something to me that sounds really, really substantial. And then I will pass it along to the guest, and then we'll talk about it. But if the person already knows the guest, then I I just feel like the middleman. Just get me out of the way. Um, This is very much like, like I said, with Donald Irwin's when this guy sent me this information about deeds and everything else. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know anything about deeds and everything else, but if he thinks it's something, if he thinks that the Donald Irwin's – was it his wife or girlfriend, whoever it was, uh, is doing things, just turn that in and see where it goes. Uh, because I'm, i am I don't have the time to do – even if you sent me all the information and even if I understood it, I really do not have the time to seriously, seriously, seriously be engaged in it. Which is probably what it needs. So for all of you, uh, just just a word of advice: if you certainly know something about a disappearance that is certainly substantial, you should absolutely come forward. And But here's another suggestion to all of you, a recommendation. In fact, it's a request. It's like imperative. Too many times I get emails like, hey, I think I know something about that disappearance. I really, you know, I heard this thing, Ed, call me. <laughs> and that person will leave the phone number. I'm going to tell all of you, I just don't call people because they give me phone numbers. I don't do that. In, in every, every, every single case, maybe I've already said this on this update episode. It's much better if you just email me with what you know, give it as much background as you can explain on it. I will read it. I will reply to you. That doesn't mean we're going to get to talk on the phone. I I, I might tell you what I think about it and everything else, but I will surely return the message. I will will be courteous and do that. But never expect me to just call you because you say, well, I know something. Call me. Because what ends up happening is when people do that, I say, you know what, how about you email me back, you telling me what you think you know, I'll read it, and then I'll decide whether we should talk about it or not. 99% of the time, I never hear back from these people. And so that further and first forces the, the standard that I've had for a long time that I just don't call people because they give me phone numbers. Because you never know what you're going to get into on the phone. Who knows? They may be hearing you know, dogs talking to them about a disappearance. And so I'm looking to avoid those situations. They start talking to me about uh, psychics and whatever else, and then I'm stuck on the phone with somebody. And then if I try to gently get off the phone, and then maybe they start saying, oh, Ed doesn't want to hear this, and I just want to avoid all of it. You just type it out, what you think you know, I'll read it. If I think we need to talk about it, then we'll talk. And you're it's once again, almost with almost one hundred percent assuredness, people never contact me again. So there you go. that's the update for Rhonda Smith. Uh, somebody wanted to talk to me, and I just said, "You know what? Uh, I don't know what to make of it. but uh, if you know Nancy, just talk to her about it." and that is the update for Rhonda Smith. Okay, just having uh, made that the topic uh, of the last update with Rhonda Smith, this uh, will uh, maybe be another uh, lesson in how I treat things uh, when somebody contacts me regarding a disappearance that Unfound has covered. Uh, Next update, and this will be the last update for uh, the regular podcast that comes on on Friday. The next updates, uh, if there are any, will be for uh, Unfound now. Um, from the Unfound Now episodes uh, the, from May through now, Justin Gaines, uh, Justin Glenn Gaines, was an 18-year-old from Snellville, Georgia. He was a college student and came home from a came from a blended family. In the early morning of November 2nd, 2007, Justin was at a club in Duluth. After unsuccessfully trying to find a ride home, Justin was seen on video walking into the parking lot. He was never seen again, and of course, his mother was the guest. And like I said, I'm sure this is very clear in your mind. This was just like, what, um, six weeks ago? Something like that that we covered his disappearance. So just within the last two weeks, I'm not going to – this is a person I don't know. I've never heard of this person before. Uh, this person is on Facebook. This is one of those messages when you're not friends with somebody, it kind of goes to that other inbox and you actually have to go over there to find those messages. You all know what I'm talking about. And I do that because I do get messages from people who I'm not friends with on Facebook. They're listeners. They want to, you know, Hey, that happened in my area. I remember when that happened, but they're not, we're not friends on Facebook. So I make it at least maybe once a week to go over there and see if any messages have come in. And so this was one of them. I'm not going to tell you this person's name. I'm just going to, you know, give you the message and my response to it. And for many of you, this is going to be uh, familiar territory. But I think all of all of you can certainly learn something from this. Hello, I've listened to your podcast recently about Justin Gaines from Georgia. I wanted to share with you another podcast that I found. I'm not going to be naming that podcast. This one says that Justin's picture was discovered in a computer that belonged to real life serial killer Israel Keys. I've been researching keys since I found this, and I'm sharing the information I found with everyone that's recently aired an episode regarding this man who is missing. Please pass this information along to the private investigator and his mother if possible. I think it deserves attention. They may already know, but it's a fairly new podcast that was aired last month. The podcast is called Blank... And the episode regarding Justin Gaines aired on July 14th. If this picture was found in a computer that belongs to a real, real, real serial killer who admitted he kept tabs on his victims' cases because the publicity made him feel high, why isn't it being talked about or investigated more? Now, many of you who have like listened to the live show, you know how I feel about the aura. Uh, around Israel Keys and the pedestal upon which some true crime um, fanatics have put him on. Okay. And as I stated here, I, I just have no time. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this last I went up and looked this list, and I'm going to tell you about it. Um, first of all, I have to admit that at this point, six years into Unfound's existence, I realize that Unfound is not the most popular true crime podcast out there. It never will be simply because it's a kind of a niche or niche podcast. We only do missing persons cases. Okay, We don't talk about a variety because a lot of people don't give a dang. Even though they're into true crime, they don't give a dang about missing persons cases. That's just the way it is. Um You know, Some are just into serial killers. Some are just into um, podcasts that talk about psychics and the paranormal in regarding to true crime and things. All sorts of different kinds, and then there are some that kind of combine all of them. That's not what we do here. But I will be honest with you that six years in, after all the publicity and marketing that we've done, uh, me doing – having a little YouTube channel – and uh, of course, testifying in a trial and speaking at schools and everything. When somebody messages me, and what they're writing shows that they've never taken the time to listen to any of Unfound's episodes or anything like that. But you know, you know this. Uh, this message doesn't even start out with "Hi Ed." Hi Ed, really love your podcast, and not that I need my butt kissed, but. Hi, Ed, Hi, Edward. Hi, Mr. Denzel, although Mr. Denzel is my father. Uh, hi, you know, I've been listening to if it's somebody who is just blasting information out there, I'll read it as I did here, but you know i st- I start thinking, you know what's you know what exactly is going on here? they this person wants me to be. Really, really engaged about something, but I'm the person who's engaged in missing persons, not this person, not this person. And when I get the idea and then they name the, the podcast that they're listen, listening to, and I know this podcast, and I'm not sure what to think of that. you know I start thinking, you know what, what's going, you know what's going on here? although I did respond. Um, so to go back uh, to the final uh, part of this, if this – if his – Justin's picture was found in a computer that belongs to a real serial killer who admitted he kept tabs on his victim's cases because the publicity made him feel high, why isn't it being talked about or investigated more? This is – I guess this maybe a little bit of a rhetorical question this person is asking me. Obviously, once again, I've talked about Israel Keys more than once. Not just on the live show, but on the regular Friday podcast episode. So my answer to that, que- that question is, to answer the final question in the messages, because there's no proof Israel killed anyone any more than the people that have been proven. That couple up in the New England states and uh, that girl who I know's name is – I put in my – Samantha Koenig. The only proof that he killed anybody are those three. It's his own words are the only reason that anybody believes he killed any more than those three. All right, so I responded to this person. Uh, I wrote her name, and then I said, I am familiar with the story. My opinion, it's all a bunch of nothing. I've looked at the list. I'm familiar with some of the cases. In fact, we've covered a few of them on Unfound, and I'm going to go through that list here in a moment. And I'm very, very sure Israel had nothing to do with those. In addition, uh, I, I put some, but now that I really, really look close at the list, there's only uh, one of them on the list even happened before Israel was born. Several of them happened. Some of them happened when he was just like 10 years old or early teens. And really what I actually put is in addition, some of this happened when Israel was a little kid. What are we supposed to think regarding those? I'm just completely unfazed by the whole thing. It's great for podcasts that like to theorize and throw the conjecture around, but that's not what I do. All right, now she replied, I wouldn't say that she was nasty, but I would say that she uh, really thought that she should be taken as seriously as possible and probably that uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. In fact, I think that... Uh, the first words that she wrote is, well, that's your opinion. Yeah, you're right. From a guy who's covered 264 disappearances over six years and has spoken at schools and everything else. Yeah. There's nothing, I mean, was there some opinion in there? Uh, I suppose. uh, I said I'm, you know, my opinion, I'm unfazed. That is a fact. I am unfazed by it. Uh, it's great for podcasts like to theorize and throw a conjecture around. That is a fact. It's also a fact that that's not what we do here. Now, uh, it is my opinion that Israel had nothing to do with any of the disappearances on that list that Unfound is covered. Certainly an opinion, but I'm going to go through those disappearances now, and you can decide for yourself. So there are 44 people on the list. One of the people, a a man that was on Israel's list, disappeared before Israel was born. I mean, well before, like 20 years before. So what are we supposed to think of that? And in another one that happened in 1988, Israel Keyes was born in 1978, he would have been 10 years old. Did he cause that disappearance too? Now, the unfound cases that are on the list, Kristen Kristen Monteferi. Uh, she disappeared from San Francisco. You might remember it. She went to work uh, at a mall and left, was never seen again. And it is believed that she might have been murdered, and I suggest you go back to listen to that, what the possibilities might be. Certainly open to that. But we also then have to start thinking, well, when did Kristen Montefiore go missing? She went missing back in the 1990s. So what are we supposed to think of that? Um, so the next one, Susie Lyle went missing, as you know, in 1988. Israel Keys was uh, would have been 20 at the time. As I've stated before on some other updates, uh, his name has come up in relation to Susie Lyle's disappearance before. I've run it past Mary Lyle, and she rejects the entire thing. And she knows more about the disappearance, her daughter's disappearance, than anybody in the public. She rejects it. Another disappearance, uh, unfound disappearance that is on the list is Christine Hamilton from California. Did not put the year that she disappeared, but I remember the, the, the facts. Um, and, uh, I'm now friends with her brother, by the way, on, um, on Facebook. And I remember him telling me that, uh, it was her mother who was the guest, but, the brother spoke to me at the time, and he remembered her going out, jumping into a car with somebody that she, who he didn't know, but seemingly by choice, got into this car with somebody and left. It sounded like this is somebody that Christine knew. Could she have known Israel Keys to the point that she just ran out and jumped in a car with him? No, and in fact, of the murders that we know that Israel Keys committed, he murdered strangers, people he had never met before. Uh, did not take the time to get to know or anything else. But Christine Hamilton's on the list, and if you'll remember at the time, we threw, uh, I guess, between the lines, you could think there are a couple different ideas as to the reason that Christine Hamilton went missing. Maybe it was the person who picked her up, certainly makes sense, but could be open to the idea that her stepfather might have done something to her as well. Moving on, Ashley Summers. This This is a clear cut. Her uncle did it in Cleveland. How do we know? Because later he ended up – he's in jail now for molesting children. And he's the one that said, yeah, she walked out the door and never came back. So Israel Keys was surely not responsible for that one either. There's a very, very, very good suspect um, uh, for Ashley's disappearance. And then the final one, as will not be any surprise, Justin Gaines. That's why we're talking about this. Justin was at a, uh, a nightclub, left seemingly on foot, although there are stories out there that he got into a car with a blonde woman. Was Israel Keys? I just got asked. Was Israel Keys that blonde woman? Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to believe that story or not, but of what we know about Israel Keys, he murdered a, a, an older couple and Samantha Koenig, who was like a teenage girl, young girl. Doesn't sound like he Israel Keys murdered any men in the prime of their lives. Where he might there might be a struggle or anything. In addition, we saw Justin, you know, what was it? Justin walks away and Israel Keys just happens to pull up in a rental car or something, and Justin would have gotten in the car with a guy he didn't know who said, Yeah, I can take you wherever you need to go. Really? Now, if that's not enough to prove you that this list doesn't mean anything, I'll move on. I'm going to move on to uh, some disappearances that we've not covered on Unfound that have either either been solved or it's pretty well understood what happened. Maybe it just hasn't been proven. And there are five of those. We have Susan Powell. Of course, we know who killed Susan Powell, Josh Powell, because how do we know that later he killed himself and their children? Remember, they went camping and the mother kind of just disappeared. Do we believe that Israel Keys did that one? Holly Bobo, we now know what happened in that disappearance as well. Israel Keys not involved. Kara Kapets- Kapetsky, we know what happened there. That was a disappearance that was unsolved for a while. We know that Israel Keys had nothing to do with that one either. Lisa Stebek, we know he didn't have anything to do with that one either. And then Trenton Duckett was also on Israel's list. Uh, and this is a Florida disappearance, coincidentally. Of course, Trenton Duckett was a small child. And the popular belief is that his mother killed him. And then, if you will remember, if this doesn't ring a bell, she ended up going on Nancy Grace shortly after this happened. And Nancy really, really went after her, trying to guilt her into saying, You know, you know, you know you, what you did and all that. Those are my words, not Nancy's, but you know what I mean. And then Trenton Duckett's mother committed suicide. Blew her head off. So do we think that Israel Keys was responsible for all of that too? So we go back. So there was a list of 44. So we could take out the one that uh, happened before Israel was born. So that's on the 43. We can probably take out the one where he was only 10 years old. That's 42. We can surely take all out all of the ones that Unfound is covered. That's uh, five, so we're down to 4237. We can take out uh, five more, once again, off the top of my head. And I have to admit there are names on this list that I don't know anything about them, and I wasn't going to take the time. But these people who I, kn- I know about, Susan Powell, Holly Bobo, Kara Kopetsky, Lisa Stevick, Trenton Duckett, I'm familiar with those. Just because I'm alive, we can rule those out. So we're now down to 32, and I'm sure if I went through that list, I could even really, 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 really narrow down that list even more to rule out Israel, Keys, and a lot of those as well. So going back to what this person wrote me, who obviously took no time to look through the entire list, but only just picked out one. Did not t- take time to go through that list and say, "Well, Israel really didn't couldn't couldn't have done this one and that one." How seriously am I supposed to take somebody like that? This is these are the things that I go through as a podcast host. I, I I'm always ready for good information. I'm always ready for it. Always, I'm always ready to talk. But sometimes uh, I, I'm a li- you know, I'm a little insulted sometimes. You know, because I took the time I have a lot of things to do for this podcast, including do this uh, this update episode, going back through all of two hundred and sixty four disappearances, making sure I get things right. Although I still probably made some mistakes. But I took the time to go through this list to try to figure out figure out if if it made sense that Israel Keys was responsible for the disappearances that I know. You would have thought that this person who wrote me could have taken the same time. And had she done this, I think then she wouldn't be so um, energetic, zealous about trying to connect Justin Gaines' disappearance to Israel Keys. It would just be something. It would just be uh, you know. I just like I said, I think a list like this just something for people to talk about because when you really, really start looking at it. You start to see how improbable that he had anything to do. What did I just name? Um, Five and five. and 12 out of 44, that's like one quarter of the list. Automatically, probably with me doing about five minutes of work, I was able to rule out at least a quarter of those people. So what are these people doing? Why are you talking about this? If five minutes, 12 people can be ruled out, victims ruled out, then... How seriously are we supposed to take the rest of the list? And I'm sure for some of you, if you went through the list, there would be a whole set of other disappearances that you might know about and know that, hey, some of these were solved. Oh, certainly it's not solved, but certainly Israel couldn't have done this one. Um, you might even be able to narrow it down more. So that's why I said in my response to this person, this is just stuff for people to talk about. That's just that, like the weather. That's all it is. And as I um, want to remind everybody every time that Israel Keyes' name comes up, he is not a supervillain. How do I know? No. Israel Keyes got caught by using Samantha Koenig's card. Just like any stupid punk who attacks an 80-year-old woman and steals her purse, then then gets caught right down the street using her credit card to buy cigarettes. For all of you people who are infatuated with Israel Keys, that is your supervillain. It's no doubt in my mind that uh, what Israel Keys was doing with this list was fantasizing. You know, I think that's all he was doing. You know, no different than uh, when somebody. Uh, you know, you know, you know, Powerball gets up to a billion dollars or Mega Millions gets up to a billion dollars, people start thinking, well, what would I do with all of that money? I would buy this and I would buy that and they start making the list. I will admit, maybe I've even done that once or 10 times. That's all this was, fantasizing. Going through and looking at these things and fantasizing about maybe how he would have done it if he were there. But he wasn't there. That's all it was. Uh, it's horrible and perverted. Uh, but we just have to remember that's just how the human mind works sometimes. We fantasize about things, maybe things we shouldn't be fantasizing about. And the difference, of course, is Israel Keyes was a killer. But there is no proof that he murdered anybody other than the three people who, he, who everybody now knows he murdered. There are no proof of any disappearances that he could be connected to, no matter how much people talk about it. Likewise, when you do that, you have to rule out people who were actually around the missing people who surely would have wanted that person to, to disappear more, like in this case of Susie Lyle, for example. So uh, just finishing, I think, what I would call on a high note – That is the end of the update portion for the Friday episodes. I will now move on to any updates for any of the uh, missing people for the Unfound Now episodes this monthly series that is only available on YouTube. Okay, the Unfound Now updates, and we have um, two of them. The first one is Lindsay Schobelock. This is a disappearance that was an Unfound Now episode in the end of March of 2022. Uh, Just to go over the facts very quickly, she was working at a tattoo job and on her job in Chillicothe, Ohio, which is a city we've mentioned many times on Unfound. But she left her tattoo job uh, abruptly on February 23rd, uh, 2022, and her car was found maybe a day later outside of Chillicothe. There were some searches done. uh, Nothing was found. But then on May 9th, so about, I don't know, five weeks, six weeks after the Unfound Now episode came out, um, her remains were found at what is described as a campsite. I'm putting – for all the video people, I'm putting those quotes up. Like this little rabbit ears campsite. And as far as uh, her remains were found, it seems to me maybe by accident maybe there was another search and and this is what happened, but maybe by accident as well. But her remains were found uh, about May 9th, identified. And I have to tell you, this never seemed like foul play to me. It seems like she had some things going on, and she left her phone and everything at home. So it's not like she went directly from the tattoo job to where a car was found. She actually went home first and left wallet and phone and things behind. As we know, never a good sign. So uh, I think that I'm pretty much right here. This was some sort of uh, overdose or suicide of some type. And so Lindsay Showblock's, uh disappearance, in my opinion, has been solved. Maybe there are people out there maybe believe that uh, this was foul play, but there was nothing in all the inf- reading I've tried to do, that anything factual to say that she was murdered. The other update. Uh, coincidentally uh, was the unfound now that I did the very next month for April of 2022 and this was for Jordan Simeon he was a young man moving from Fargo North Dakota to New Orleans or New Orleans on March 5th but he never made it there Uh, allegedly his car broke down in Arkansas in a Not in a rural area. He he was on a highway, but it was just outside, I think, a city that he was about to go through, and he had called and said that his car broke down and that he had called a tow truck and, and all these things. But I think some of that ended up not being not true. I don't know if he called a tow truck or not. But he, his remains, uh, there was there were remains that were found uh, in a creek at the end of April. So right around when I would have been doing that update episode, but seemingly I missed it or something. But then he, it was uh, the remains were positively identified as Jordan's uh, in May, like around May tenth or something. So and his remains were found in a creek. And this is another situation where in my opinion this does not sound like foul play. Uh to add in some more facts. Uh his car was parked along the side of the road. The keys were on the roof, but so you know, there was no nothing stolen or anything. Uh I tried to find a cause of death for Jordan. If if there's any belief that there was foul play, I didn't find anything like that in in the, kind of the just Google searching things before doing this update episode. So he was found, but there was no cause of death. But it does seem, and I think I kind of expressed this in that Unfound Now, that Jordan was going through some things. He's moving, and uh, that can be stressful having moved a couple times, I know, but it didn't sound like – he was too hot on doing so, and then even an article I found in preparing for this episode found out that he was particularly depressed that he thought there was somebody who was supposed to travel with him, who was going to be moving with him, and that person decided to back out at the last minute. this uh seemingly affected Jordan in a very negative way there were no There was no news as to whether there was anything wrong with his car. At all, and like I said, I don't know if there's any really any proof that he ever did call a tow truck to come pick him up. That's what he told this person he was where he was going to New Orleans. The person who was waiting for him there. That's what he told her. But I don't know if there's actually any proof of that. Um, so, uh, in my opinion, both Lindsay's and Jordan's disappearances have been solved, and in neither case do I believe that that, the, that there was foul play. These two people who in my opinion, obviously had some negative things going on in their life, and that's the reason then that they decided to probably overdose or kill themselves, something like that. So those are the only two updates out of all 26-something-like-that episodes. Of course, you have to remember, many of those early unfound Niles, they're already solved, so there's no updates to do on them. Probably the first one you get to that isn't solved is... Uh, Jason Landry's, and I said that I would talk about that. Maybe I'll take a moment to talk about that before I move on as far as an update for him. But there is a private investigator working on his case who has a list of people that should be looked, looked into as far as suspects in Jason Landry's case. I reject all of it, and that's my update for Jason Landry. He is still missing, still very sad. I still believe that he went off all on his own and he is there in that area somewhere he's just his remains have just been missed and that concludes the update portion of this podcast now if you could please pause whatever you are doing as remember Now, could you please pause whatever you are doing as we remember all the missing people featured on Unfound and Unfound Now. Susie Lyle, Jason Jolkowski, Jesse Foster, Rosemarie Gayhart, Ben Charles Padilla, Kelly Rothwell, Joshua Guimond, Donnie Smatlack, Andrea Bowman, Robin Abrams, Regina Marie Boss, Christopher Hyde, Jeff Nichols, Rebecca Gary, James Walker, Teresa Butler, Charlotte Paulus, Lola Catherine Fry, Eric Franks, Jeff Joseph, Donna Michalenko, David Madot, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer, Claudia Wells, Peggy and Patty McDaniel, Shannon Turner, Brandi Wells, Clashindra Hall, Ronnie Russell, Esther Westenbarger, Shane Fell, Ashley Eifert, Brandon Williams, Craig Freer, Pamela Golden, Chip Campbell, Amanda Deguio, the passengers and crew of Flight 370, April Pitzer, Jennifer Wilkerson, Kent Jacobs, Aaron Gilbert, Tammy Leppert, Crystal Morrison, Chris Turner, Linda K. Carroll, Nikki McCown, Helen Diamond, Laura Bible, and Ashley Freeman. Lucinda Hules, Ashley Kohler, Debbie Lowe, Patrick Beavers, Clinton Nelson, Troy Galloway, Patty Action, Danielle Bell, Evelyn Hartley, Dal Phillips, Tyler Stice, Bill Underhill, Patricia Taylor, Aaron Barnard, Jeremy Burt, Brian Sullivan, Nikki Wells, Marina Bolter, Mandy Stokes, Greg Brooks, Rebecca Henderson, Dominique Holly Grisham, Tiffany Daniels, Nicholas Masucci, Donald Irwin, Billy Di Silvestro. Renee Yergain, Mikkel Biggs, Al Copper, J.R. Malahan, Jamie Bowen, Travis Roberson, Rosemary Rapp, Kristen Mottaferri, Zoe Campos, Sean Guignard, Thomas Brown, Amanda Fravel, Julie Early, Ellen Sloan, Renee Lamana, Nico Lisi, Leah Peebles, Melissa Hasley, Kimberly Raymer, Stephen Kocher, Bonnie Joseph, Immaculate Basil, Bobby Campbell, Kimberly Norwood, Alyssa Turney, Bobby Tennyson, Dale Kerstetter, Lacey Buenfil, Peggy McGuire, Jansen Brewer, and Daniel Braden, Robert Wayne Cox, Lucas Degerness, Stephen Adams, Ashley Summers, Bonnie Degas and Jeremy Degas, Judith Emkey, Jessica, Han- Jessica Hamby, Tim Beauchart, Devin Bond, Juanita Nelson, Desiree Ferris, Angie Yarnell, Deborah Asbury, Sean Koski, Mary Lands, Devin Brown Busetta. Shanna Boydo, Travis Murrow, Keith Fetter, Layla Faulkner, Megan Lancaster, Kelly Sims, Jack Hemby, Barbara Frame, Dorian Myers, Austin Pivo, Christine Hamilton, Monica Appleton, Jonathan Estes, Molly Miller, and Colt Haynes, Donnie Martin III, Kamisha Hollis, Lisa Wallace, Tammy McKittrick, Julie C., Stephanie Clemens, Andy Chapman, Trevor Nichols, Tiffany Johnson, Tyler North, David Kesey, Lucero Sarabia, Brandi Myers, J.L. Hamblin, Bradley Allen, Timothy Guy, Janelle Matthews, Ronald McNutt, Cameron Remmer, Tammy Arthur and Chad Peters, Jesse Ross, Lisa Shuttleworth, Jackson Miller, Patrick Reed, Jeremy Goodwin, Mary Jane Van Gilder, Phyllis Corbin, Eric Alvarado, Cassandra Ramirez, April Andrews, David Hardy Jr., Dennis J. Lushball, Christine Nichols, Chris Sanders, Danielle Sleeper, Julie Wefflin, Shelva Rafty, Rodney Kaiser, Chris Mittendorf, and Christina Branham, Gregory Howes, Brian Cook, Charles Thompson, Jessica Garino, Jacob Weeks, Jackie Bucky Letney, Joe Bain, Vanessa Oren, Jennifer Casper Ross, Robbie Hurt, Unique Harris, Doug Jones, Deborah Bowman, Bradley Brooks, Angela Green, Jody Husentrout, Brennan Smokey, Riles Chapman, Marion Hurley, Gayla Shaper, Caleb Powell, Chelsea Kobo, Bonnie Santiago, TJ Murray, Noah Davis, Patty Dudek, Ben Archer, Jake Lachelet, Skye Burnley, Kayleen Oling, Stephanie Hartwell, Nileen Marshall, Kaya Taylor, Pearl Pinson, Brenda Condon, Alwyn Albright, Skye Tossic, Sandy Knipe, Brian Schaefer, Teresa Woolard. Toby Anderson, David Schrader, Chance Engelbert, Julianne Jolay, Rachel Searks, Sean Antill, Randy Duran, Rashawn Francis, Amanda Ward-Romine, Crystal Bailey, Brenda Sika, Laverta Sorel, Nicholas Shin, Kevin Newen, Ashley Simpson, Leanne Hosberg, Alicia Markovich, Audrey Heron, Lonine Rogers, Beatrice Viela, Ali Lowitzer, Jamie Peterson, Belinda Blanar, Jordan Carvalho, Christian Balky Thompson, Paul Sanders, Jennifer Perry, Andrea Knabel, Sebastian Kelly, Marian Verdechia, Marcella Kroeltsy, and Mary Regan. Sue Swaddell, Mark Heimbaugh, Dub and Chance Wackerhagen, Kimberly Wilson-Talley, Harry Milligan, Paul Egan, Steve Davis, Douglas Crawford, Rhonda Smith, Ryan Stuka, Daniel Villarreal. Mary Watkins, Bradley Strasner, Justin Gaines, Jacqueline Cooper, Holly White, Michaela Bally, Chase Lackey, Belinda Brewster, The Pickering Six, Brenda Davidson, Milda McQuillan, Linda Stoltfus, Erica Lloyd, Mary Lane Carter, Stephanie Hollingsworth, Corey Dale Moore, Alan White, Jason Landry, Ilea Scheibel, Kirsten Brueggemann, Mark Pinella, Cynthia Ba Traway, Louis Davila, Candy Gonzalez, Justin Siwek, Michael Vaughn, Wendy Gessing, Shannon Miller, Glenda Parton, and Dwayne Selby. Heidi Plank, Bo Mann, Stephen Salazar, Lindsay Schobelock, Jordan Simeon, Marie Peter Toltz, Dylan Rounds, Dana Smithers. Please, if you have the time and passion, please contact these missing persons families to help them in their quests to find their missing loved ones. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.